Lucifer means Lightbringer presents the mythical astronomy of ice and fire, the sacred order of green zombies, part seven. Welcome to Sacred Order of Green Zombies 7, Old Bones and Cold Gods. And as you heard from the introduction, yes, the wig does get old very quick. That one in particular is very dry and stringy and (laughs) it's full of that. In any case, Ideas of Ice and Fire, Quinn, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for joining me and San Rixian, I should say. So yes, unmute your screens, folks. What's up, people? It's me, Ideas of Ice and Fire. Hi, I'm the dude from the intro. The dude from the intro. (laughs) Unmute yourself and say hi, Mallory. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm not the dude from the intro. I am the acquirer of that cloak. (laughs) How's everybody doing this Sunday? Welcome to church, folks. Yes, it is my birthday next week. Uh, We will be having a fun birthday stream next Sunday on the 10th. Uh, And so so Sanry sent me my dark cloak a little early. Thank you, Sanry. It's, uh, It's quite lovely. And I must say it's it's wonderfully lightweight and breathable, so it is not uh, not too suffocating. So, In I'm really case. glad because you know it can be they can be deceptive. They can trick you. Quinn, last time two weeks ago, you joined me uh, for our last Sacred Order of Green Zombies episode, and we talked about the old ones, and we were talking about the Green Men and the others. And right as it was getting good, just as it was getting good. Um, you, uh, you, you had to dip out and basically you were sick the whole time. I probably should have told you not even to try, but, um, maybe I didn't realize quite how ill you were, but in any case you had to cut out and get some rest. And we were just getting to the part where I really wanted to chat with you because essentially my big theory was that the others are the spirits of green men and the green men in my mind are the original green seers. They are cousins of the children of the forest. I've even, it could be that the quote unquote wood dancers, the warriors of the children of the forest, are the green men. And that's just another name for them. I mean, it's so vague that we really don't know. Uh, but my point is that basically your theory speculates that it was a, like a, a rival faction or tribe of children of the forest who became the others or created the others. And I came around through a ton of research and wordplay to basically say that. A certain faction of green men were either sacrificed by Azor High or in response to Azor High, you know, became the others, something along those lines. So, yeah, just any thoughts or reactions you have on me uh, taking three years to come around to the same point that you did, more or less? I mean, your ideas are compatible with mine, technically. I mean, yeah, like like you said, like my whole thing was like, I'm, some people thought that the children of the forest were like just hive minded and that they all had like the same kind of thoughts, like, like the others might be. Um, but my idea was basically that they were probably more individual because like in the caves, when we see them with the brand, they seem, they di- they have different personalities. Like leaf is not the same as like all the rest of them. So I thought that like some of the children probably weren't as like excited about like the pact 
that their ancestors made that they made a long time ago and that maybe some of them were more aggressive and that they broke off and did that. But yeah, like, like you said, like you did back your ideas up with a lot of research and a lot of like quotes from the book and a lot of interesting things. And I, I enjoyed it a lot. I think it's really cool. All that boring crap that I'm known for. I mean, it's, uh, it's not boring. I mean, it depends on if you're nah, I'm just mythology. Kidding. I'm just Same kidding. <laughs> no, it's, it is fun. It's a, it's, it's a different way of, of, you know, proving quote unquote things or providing evidence for things, but it's always fun when things line up. And like, so let's go back to what you were saying. You know, the children of the forest, you know, if they're not a hive mind, they're, they're closer, let's say, than humans are. They, they're more of a collective. But even if, if, as a writer, if you're creating a hive mind, and George loves to write about hive minds and collectives of various kinds, if you're creating something like that, the natural storyline to do is like, well, what if one person had an original thought in their head one day? It's, mm-hmm. it's basically the story of Lucifer, who was the first angel to be like, well, you know, maybe f- God and maybe like maybe I'm the man, you know, and it, he was the first person to have that sort of thought. And he got thrown out of heaven, uh, you know, according to uh, certain obscure Hebrew texts and all that. It's actually not in the Bible, technically, but. Uh, in any case, um, oh, I see a 666 super chat from Disputed Lands. How on topic and on brand. Hail <clears throat> Satan. Hail <laughs> Satan. Yeah. For entertainment purposes only. We don't really worship the devil. No, I do. The dark Lord shall rise again. Oh. <laughs> I speak for myself. I stand correct. Cthulhu, though. Is, I feel like you get down with Cthulhu, though, Quinn. Yeah, yeah. I'm more, I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you're down with the deep ones. We yeah, know. I'm less on the Judeo-Christian side and more on the Lovecraft side of things. <laughs> I'm down with uh, Carthulhu because I like hugs. <laughs> I'm more about the hugs. So, <laughs> but in any case, so let's let's think about this. So you've got your hive mind or your semi. You've got your people that generally live as a collective, and they all know that when they die, they join a real hive mind in the weirwoods, um, and then something happens. So. This story that the show gave us was that the first men were so aggressive that the children of the forest essentially had to turn to, you know, magic and make the others. So, Quinn, you don't agree with that? You don't think that the others were created in response to the first men? I mean, well, yes, they were created in response to the first men. But I think it was I think I still think that it could have been offensive rather than defensive as like the show is like the show is saying we were at war. But I, I know we, you, we've talked a lot about like how there's probably discrepancies in the timeline. But I still I, I like the idea of the children making a pact, calming down for a little bit and then like deciding later on or at least some of them deciding later on, you know, what? actually screw this and let's attack, you know, but we'll see. But I'm not yeah. saying it's absolutely wrong, but, you know. Well, it gets into semantics and justification. Um, I think the thing that will be different is that. Uh, the show has – I think the show has simplified things, which they usually do with the magic and lore. And they're giving us the conflict is basically first men, children of the forest, and the children made the others in response. And what I think we're actually going to see in the books is something more complicated where you have humans, cough, cough, Azor High, um, become you know messing with the power of the green seers. And so it's not actually the children who did the dark stuff with the magic – but rather humans uh, getting their hands on the children's magic and either forcing them to do things or stealing their magic and doing stuff. Um, we're going to talk about Stannis and Renly uh, today, you know, Renly's killing 
And I think that's got a strong sort of parallel that's going on. But that's what I see, Quinn, is Azor High is essentially the antagonist here. Um, I've, I've basically come down to the idea that his whole purpose of getting into Westeros and killing Nissa Nissa was gaining access to the Weirwood magic. Um, we're still arguing about what the sequence was, if that happened to, to break the moon or after the moon was broken. But point being, like, uh, Azor High breaking into the Weirwood net is a message that seems to come up over and over and over and over. And there seems to be an awful lot of bloodshed that's been done to do this you know, to force your way in. So it's the killing of Nissa Nissa. It might be the killing of green men. So I suspect it's more like something along the lines. I always talk about the others as being evicted from the Weirwoods. And so essentially I think Azor High forced his way in, kind of set the thing on fire, and the old spirits that were already in the tree got pushed out. And that's why the others read as Icy She, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've I've heard your, I've heard these ideas before. I like your idea about like them coming out and like literally the spirits of nature coming out and just taking a different form that's more vengeful. Um, yeah, I think it's really cool, really cool idea, and I like your thought process. And it's definitely backed up by a significant amount of evidence. <laughs> and today we're going to provide even more evidence as I try to see if I can pull off antlers and a hood at the same time. I've sort of got it. <laughs> it's tricky. You got to get those special hoods with the little, uh, you know, Velcro uh, things in the front to go around your horns. But um, yeah, we'll go with this for a bit. You Horn know how problems. I'm... Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it happens to forty percent of men in their lifetime. So. Oh my god. <laughs> all right. So, my name is LML, and I'm here to tell you all about the old gods of the Weirwood, or is it the cold gods? The old ones or the cold ones? Old ones or old bones? Yes, it's going to be one of those episodes. Lately, we've been following the trail of the green men, who seem to be the same thing as the old ones. We've been doing that by taking a hard look at every scene where the phrase old ones appears, and so far, it's been quite fruitful. We've done two episodes like that, and one of the most interesting conclusions that it has led to is that the others are, in some sense, former green men. In particular, some part of the others that we see is comprised of the spirits of the oldest, most original green seers, the ones who were inside the Weirwood Net before Azora High invaded it. We've been seeing the others as some sort of exiled tree spirits for a long time now. So, when we saw all these quotes connecting the old ones to Garth people, or stag boys, as Sinrixian likes to say, and once we began seeing them as the original green seers, it was only natural to make that connection, that they might be the others. So, would you like to see a depiction of Azor High killing Garth and turning his trees into others? Well, don't all say yes at once. I'm so glad that you do. I'm sure in ten seconds the chat will respond. So, I might have included this in the last episode, but it was full up, and we were out of time. I'm talking about Renly's murder by Stannis' shadow, of course, a scene that Catelyn witnesses in A Clash of Kings. Renly is the quintessential green man Garth figure in this scene, and his throat is cut in the manner of ritual sacrifice. I think we all understand that. Most notable are these lines. The king's armor was a deep green, the green of leaves in a summer wood, so dark it drank the candlelight. Gold highlights gleamed from inlay and fastenings like distant fires in that wood, winking every time he moved. So Renly is a summer king, as you know, and he's a Garth figure. But what's all this about a dark wood? 
like distant fires in that wood. It's a, a summer wood so dark it drank the candlelight. That's interesting. Dark wood. A shadow emerged from the dark of the wood, right? Well, as long as there's fire in Renly's wood, we should probably be in good shape. Now, take a look at what Kat sees before she enters Renly's tent. They rode in silence through sparse woodland, where the trees leaned drunkenly away from the sea. The nervous whinny of horses and the clink of steel guided them back to Renly's camp. The long ranks of man and horse were armored in darkness, as black as if the smith had hammered night itself into steel. There were banners to her right, banners to her left, and rank on rank of banners before her. But in the pre-dawn gloom, neither colors nor sigils could be discerned. A gray army, Catelyn thought, gray men on gray horses beneath gray banners. As they sat, their horses waiting, Rinley's shadow knights pointed their lances upward. She rode through a forest of tall, naked trees, bereft of leaves and life. Where Storm's End stood was only a deeper darkness, a wall of black through which no stars could shine. But she could see torches moving across the fields where Lord Stannis had made his camp. The candles within Rinley's pavilion made the shimmering silken walls seem to glow, transforming the great tent into a magical castle alive with emerald light. Two of the rainbow guards stood sentry at the door to the royal pavilion. The green light shone strangely against the purple plumes of Sir Parman's surcoat, and gave a sickly hue to the sunflowers that covered every inch of Sir Emmons' enameled yellow plate. Long silken plumes flew from their helms, and rainbow cloaks draped their shoulders. So, we have Renly's magical green castle, alive with light, but it's surrounded by an army that is like a forest of leafless black trees made of night-black steel. This is ominous, as is the sickly hue that the green light gives the yellow sunflowers on the knight's armor there. Sir Nunos is a solar deity, and so the sickening of the sun symbolism is simply a prelude to Renly's flame of life, the fire in his wood, yes, Sanrixian, that's what I said, being extinguished. In fact, one can imagine the darkness sweeping through this army of leafless black trees, arriving at Renly's tent, and then turning everything cold and dark as Renly is killed. The quote is, Death came in that door and blew the life out of him as swift as the wind snuffed out his candles. Renly's death is equivalent to the darkening of the sun in mythical astronomy terms, and the sun is, of course, darkened by the smoke, ash, and soot from the fire moon's explosion. So what kills Renly? Well, the shadow baby assassin, of course. You can see how perfectly that fits. The shadow that kills the sun comes from a fire moon figure, Melisandre, who has just been impregnated by an Azora high figure, Stannis. And when we look over in the direction of Stannis's army, from whence the sun-darkening shadow baby came, we see a symbol of the rising smoke cloud, Storm's End, a deeper darkness, a wall of black through which no stars could shine. Storm's End is elsewhere described as looking like a rising fist, and that's the signature description of the mushroom cloud symbol. So setting aside the mythical astronomy to consider the archetypes here, we see that Stannis Ahai gives his dragon seed to Melissa Nyssa, let's call her, who births the shadow and darkness which blots out Solar King Renly. Stannis is also showing us a Solar King turning dark. The shadow baby is literally a black shadow version of King Stannis, complete with black shadow sword. 
That's what shows up in Renly's tent, the evil version of Azor High. Stannis's shadow invades the magical Alive with Light Green Castle, which I take to be a model of the undefiled Weirwoodnet, as is Renly himself. And that's similar to Cernunos, who is seen as an embodiment of the forest and of green nature. So, really cool detail here. Renly's neck wound actually becomes a bloody Weirwood mouth. Renly's head rolled sickeningly to one side, and the second mouth yawned wide, the blood coming from him now in slow pulses. This spells out the red smile symbolism in grisly fashion. The bloody red smile neck wound is literally a mouth here. So this shows that the throat cutting is indeed meant to evoke the bloody smile of the weirwood trees. And carving this in a green Garth figure like Renly, well, it's pretty much perfect. So once again, I will say that I believe that the idea of carving the faces on the weirwood trees was only done when Azor High invaded the weirwood net, and not before, and that it was done to allow Azor to gain entrance to the trees. I mean, think about what's going on here. You know, the shadow baby invading the green castle tent is Azor High invading the weirwood net, and this is when we get a weirwood face carved on Renly, who basically represents Garth and the entire weirwoods himself. So... It's pretty vivid symbolism, in my opinion. So Shadow Stannis kills Renly and brings death to the magical green castle. And this symbolizes Azor High's penetration of the Weirwood Net. And then what happens? Stannis steals Renly's tree army. That's right. But as they go over to Stannis in the cold dawn air, they undergo transformation. And now they sound a lot like the others. Renly's battles were already coming apart as the rumors spread from mouth to mouth. The night fires had burned low, and as the east began to lighten, the immense mass of Storm's End emerged like a dream of stone, while wisps of pale mist raced across the field, flying from the sun on wings of wind. Morning ghost, she heard old Nan call them once, spirits returning to their graves, and Rinley, one of them now, gone like his brother Robert, like her own dear Ned. The others are described by Tormund as cold mists with teeth, and a wisp is a word that can mean ghost, and indeed, the pale wisps are called morning ghosts right here in the story, and those I take for representations of the others. They're flying away from the sun, just as the others seem to be like vampires who cannot bear the touch of the sun. And just as Renly, who is now one of the morning ghosts, like his brother Robert, has turned from a warm solar king to a cold corpse... And at the risk of stating the obvious, Robert and Renly, our two signature stag boys, have now become symbolic others in this passage. This is all occurring as Cat and Brienne emerge into the, quote, chill of dawn, making this yet another example of the long-running association between the sword Dawn and the others. Indeed, consider the fact that Renly has a rainbow guard, since rainbows are associated with crystals and ice. A rainbow guard is actually the same idea as Robert having a Kingsguard of otherish white knights. Individually, the Rainbow Guard is very colorful, but taken together, they make a rainbow, which is part of the ice and crystal family of symbolism. The quote continues a moment later with this. As the long fingers of dawn fanned across the fields, color was returning to the world. Where gray men had sat gray horses armed with shadow spears, the points of 10,000 lances now glinted silverly, cold, 
and on the myriad flapping banners, Catelyn saw the blush of red and pink and orange, the richness of blues and browns, the blaze of gold and yellow, all the power of Storm's End and Highgarden, the power that had been Rinley's an hour ago. They belong to Stannis now, she realized, even if they do not know it themselves yet. Where else are they to turn, if not to the last Baratheon? Stannis has won all with a single evil stroke. I am the rightful king, he had declared, his jaw clenched hard as iron, and your son no less a traitor than my brother here. His day will come as well. A chill went through her. So as the fingers of dawn fan out across the field of morning ghosts, which are like the others, those dark green tree soldiers with shadow spears have transformed into the others now. Their lances glint silvery cold in the dawn light, and they take on the rainbow hues of the rainbow guard. This is no cheerful sunrise. This is an evil dawn with a chill born of dark magic. And Stannis has stolen the tree knights from the dark of the wood and made them into others that will now do his bidding. Pretty amazing, right? I mean, there it is. Evil Azor High invading the green, undefiled Weirwood and making the others out of a dark forest with the ritual killing of a green man. This is not only an invasion of the Weirwood but a defilement and a poisoning. And this should also be akin to setting the Weirwood on fire, right? I've said that a bunch of times. Azor Ahai invades the Weirwood and he sets it on fire. And indeed, even though Renly the Sun King dies, and even though the candles are snuffed out, and even though his last word is cold, the ensuing struggle in the tent sets the magical green castle on fire. Another man thrust a flaming torch at her back, but the rainbow cloak was too sodden with blood to burn. Brienne spun and cut, and the torch hand went flying. Flames crept across the carpet. The maimed man began to scream. So that's pretty cool. Flying torches and severed hands are both recognizable moon meteor symbols, and of course the severed hand is also a bloody hand weirwood symbol. The tent catches fire, creating the ubiquitous burning weirwood image that we all know. So we've got a burning tent and bloody hands and a dying green man altogether. It's pretty outstanding. And then a moment later it says, Behind them, the king's pavilion was ablaze, flames rising high against the dark. No one made any move to stop them. Men rushed past them, shouting of fire and murder and sorcery. Others stood in small groups and spoke in low voices. A few were praying, and one young squire was on his knees sobbing openly. So fire and murder and sorcery and a towering pyre for a dead king. That's uh, pretty much the full collection of the calling cards of Azor Ahai now, isn't it? And look, now the others are appearing. I wanted to show you the cold silvery spears first, but yeah, this is a nice others double entendre to indicate Renly's army as becoming the others. And just in case you missed it, it said, others stood in small groups and spoke in low voices right outside the tent. So... Catelyn runs outside the tent. She sees the army with silvery spears, and then it says others stood around in groups. I mean, it's all, you know, it is what it is. So, just as Azor Ahai invaded the Weirwoods and obtained the fire of the gods from the burning tree, Stannis Ahai has invaded the burning green castle of the Stag King and has stolen great power, which in this case is the symbolic, uh, the army of symbolic others. So now when the green men were transformed into others, back, you know, originally, it wouldn't have been all the green men. As Quinn was saying on his video, he's looking at a, more of like a faction 
of the Children of the Forest or a faction of the Green Men. So some of these Green Men must surely have remained green because after all, we do hear about Green Men on the Isle of Faces that supposedly stand watch to this day. And similarly, Stannis doesn't actually steal all of Renly's army. The Tyrells and a few other houses of the Reach do not go over, but instead regroup back in the Reach and eventually end up riding in to save the day at the Battle of the Blackwater. It is these forces of the Tyrells which give us the green, resurrected Renly, quote-unquote, who's really Garland Tyrell in disguise, who seems to symbolize the green zombie side of the equation. And of course, you'll remember that Team Lannister slash Tyrell is the side using green wildfire at the battle there. So there you have it, evil Azor Ahai invading the Weirbunet and ending up as a leader of the others who seem to be transformed green men. Now, before we dive into the essay proper, I've got one more little treat for you, one more little nugget that I have only recently unearthed. I'm happy to inform you that it was only this week that it occurred to me to, you know, check The World of Ice and Fire, the book that actually tells us about the Old Ones on Lang, for clever symbolic uses of the Old Ones phrase. Yeah, what do you know? And I found three. One of them is a bit ho-hum. It's a line about Tywin as Ares' hand that says, Tywin built new roads and repaired old ones, which I really can't make too much meaning out of. But the other two, well, they apply specifically to the Durandan line of kings, which is simply amazing, the Stag Kings. They're both talking about the shift in rulership of the Riverlands from the Durandan kings over to the Ironborn. Just as Arlen III Durandan had done three centuries earlier, Harwin claimed the Riverlands for himself. Those river lords who had fought beside him had done naught but exchange one master for another, and their new master was harsher, crueler, and more exacting than the old one. The old one master here is the Durandan kings. So the old ones are the horned lords, just as I've been telling you. That was from the Riverlands section of the World of Ice and Fire, and this one is from the Iron Islands section. At Fair Market, Harwin found himself facing Arik Durandan, the young Storm King, leading a host half the size of his own. But the Stormlanders were ill-led, wary and far from home, and the Iron Men and River Lord shattered them. King Arik lost two brothers and half his men, and was lucky to escape with his own life. As he fled south, the small folk of the Riverlands rose up, and his garrisons were driven out or slaughtered. The broad, fertile riverlands and their wealth passed from the hands of Storm's Inn to those of the Iron Men. In one bold stroke, Harwin Hardhand had increased his holdings tenfold and made the Iron Islands once more a power to be feared. Those lords of the Trident who had joined him in hopes of freeing themselves of the Durandans soon learned that their new masters were far more brutal and demanding than their old ones. So George is kind of doubling down here to describe the Durandan as old ones. And he's referencing the same event in two different places in the book while doing it. And this, to me, indicates clear intention. And this scene really sounds a lot like the Stannis Renly scene, doesn't it? It's that same line that we just saw, with a stroke. So-and-so evil Zor High person turned the tables and got a new army. The antler Durandan king escapes here, but he loses the battle, the Riverlands, and many of his family. So it really is similar to Renly being slain. Although Renly doesn't escape, 
uh, the Tyrells and the other Reachmen escape and live to fight another day. And of course, they're led by Garland dressed up as Renly. So it's almost like Renly escapes. In any case, the, the key line here is, is that one bold stroke. It's like, you know, we're going to see this pattern several times today where this evil Azor high person turns the tables, gets a new army, which is like the others, just suddenly like that. So just keep that in your mind. Put a pin in that idea. Now, Questing Beast has already figured out what that line about Tywin repairing the old one's roads might be about. Uh, she says, could the roads be a reference to ley lines, a.k.a. the Weirwood Net? And yes, we're going we're gonna to read a line a little bit later about setting stones, about Robert you know, saying the stone has been set. And I do think George is playing with that idea of ley lines. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, repairing the roads. It also makes you think of the Valyrian, um, Valyrian roads being straight as an arrow, which has also led to talk of ley lines. So cool. That's, I knew there was something there. I just I couldn't figure it out. I didn't want to bang my head on it. So it just goes to show you. The one time I give up and be like, oh, I don't know if this one fits the pattern. Somebody's like, oh, yeah. Ley lines, dude. Nice. As for those men of the Riverlands, uh, the army who's changing hands from the Durandon to the Ironborn, well, they could be seen as residents of the Green Sea, of course, because they live in the Riverlands. And we've seen that before in other passages, especially, you know, given the way that Martin uses the Riverlands and the Trident symbolically. Anyway, I thought that was fun. And at this point, I think there can be little doubt that Martin is intending to create an association between, quote, the old ones and the horny folk that we usually call the green men. What all that means exactly, we're still trying to suss out, but I think there can be no doubt that the old one was Garth, as it is written in A Dance with Dragons. All right, so that's our first section. Quinn, what do you think of that first bit there? thought it was pretty cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, because I did read through this entire uh, script earlier today, and you mentioned like that one line that gets repeated a lot. And yeah, it was interesting because that was something that I didn't notice either. So it's really cool to see you put all these all these bits and pieces together and see how it all comes together. Very fascinating. Yeah, at this point, we've got so many old ones quotes that specifically refer to uh, Garth people, Durandans, like... I mean, it's, it's pretty overwhelming. Like, there's definitely meant to be a link here. My main question, Quinn, now is simply, is Martin using the phrase old ones to refer to all the old races collectively? Children, green men, deep ones, old ones, the others. They could all be the old ones. That's more like how Lovecraft uses the phrase old ones. Yeah. Or, is, or is he more specifically referring to it as the green men? Um, in particular, that's, that's kind of my only question left with this. So, yeah, I, I don't it, think you can tell just yet. Yeah. And there's not even that much difference, really. It's, it's not a huge difference in e either way. He's tapping into this old ones idea to tell us about green men. They're definitely one of the old ones groups. So since we don't know much about the green men, I think it's working pretty well to use this as a way of exploring them. Definitely. Right. So we're going to, as usual, we're going to read our dragon patrons first. I got my deep cuts. And by the way, this, uh, the spacey music that I've been using um, on all these Old Ones episode, in case you didn't know, uh, I did make that music. I play bass, as you know. I like to play electric bass through lots of effects pedals. And so all that really weird soundtracky stuff is basically me with my bass and mostly my pedals multi-tracking. So 
It's all original LML nightmare music. <laughs> Milk makes strong bones. This section is brought to you by Yggdragaris, the Stormworm, the Dragon of the Loch, whose scales are sea green and whose horns, wings, membranes, and spinal crest are burnt orange. It is said that Yggdragaris, a descendant of Nidhogg, is foretold to encircle the well of Mimir until the days when the long winter comes again. And Milaris, the weird dragon, whose scales are white as bone and whose horns, wing bones, and spinal crest are as red as blood. Milaris, who is native to Stigai, is the first known Stygian dragon to leave that corpse city at the heart of the shadow in over five millennia. It is rumored that Milaris is inhabited by the spirit of a long-vanished sorceress from Ashai called Melanie Lot 7. I love my spacey music a little too much. I'm sorry if that shows through. I'm, I'm proud of the things I can do in life. They're not always very important or significant, but if it comes to spacey nightmare music, I got oh, you. Yeah, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Continue. Like I said, the others are in some sense former green men, evicted from their tree home. All of this is actually hinted at in the good old A Game of Thrones prologue, the Bible of A Game of Thrones, if you will. A shadow emerged from the dark of the wood. It stood in front of Royce. Tall it was, gaunt and hard as old bones, with flesh pale as milk. Its armor seemed to change color as it moved. Here it was white as new-fallen snow, there black as shadow everywhere dappled with the deep gray-green of the trees. The patterns ran like moonlight on water, with every step it took. The others are called the White Walkers of the Wood, and here they are shadows emerging from the, quote, dark of the wood. But these shadows are white, like the weirwood trees themselves, and look, they even have dappled green skin. Well, it's the armor, actually, which is made of ice, and reflects the green of the wood around them. But we know that dappled is a children of the forest keyword because the children have dappled skin like a deer. And of course, the same idea would apply to Cernunos-like stag men. Every Cernunos was once a dappled Bambi boy, you know. And this is the introduction of the others here. Every word should be regarded as intentional. The others who walk the white woods are, quote, everywhere dappled with the gray-green of the trees. This certainly seems like a screaming clue that the others actually come from the trees and are tied to the dappled children of the forest, or the dappled green men, or both. And how about that line, gaunt and hard as old bones? A giant hat tip to at Darth Triple D, that's at Darth DDD on Twitter, who caught on to, quote, old bones as a covert way of saying old ones. All you have to do is stick the B in there, and old ones becomes old bones. Now, I actually did notice this line about old bones from the prologue while doing the old ones research, and I was wondering if maybe it was an old ones reference, but I actually was like, nah, that's too much of a reach. And so I basically set it aside and kind of just put it out of my mind. But then after the episode two weeks ago, 
at Darth Triple D and Ravenous Reader and Wiz the Smith, started digging up all the quotes with the old bones line, and it quickly became apparent that this is indeed wordplay that Martin is using. So this is actually kind of a little fun behind-the-scenes story here. We're looking at an idea that I was like, yeah, I don't think so. And then the other myth heads were like, wait a minute, LML, this is actually the shit. Check this out. And then so they, they went to town on it, and that's basically the genesis of this entire episode. So I've written this episode just in the last week based on this discovery that we were kicking around on Twitter. So if, uh, if you haven't joined Twitter by now, folks, get on Twitter. This is why I keep telling you, you will get a bunch of political posts from me. But if you can deal with that, you can also uh, participate in the, uh, in the great uh, constant like workshopping of ideas that we're doing on Twitter. It's tons of fun. So we are going to go through all of these juicy old bones quotes today. And you will see what I mean pretty quickly. But let me back up. And set this up by simply taking a look at this old bones description of the others at face value without the super hyper wordplay angle. Uh, So those who have called on to the weirwood tree slash others connection have recognized that milk white and bone white are descriptions that are applied to both the others and the weirwoods. The other here is pale as milk and hard as old bones, while the one Sam encounters in a storm of swords has milky white flesh, bone white hands, and icy white bones as pale as milk glass. The red and white coloring of the weirwoods, meanwhile, is most often referred to as blood and bone. And most often is actually a bit of an understatement. The truth is that the only way the white wood of the weirwood is ever described is as pale as bone, white as bone, bone white, etc. Every single time, bone white, white as bone. In other words, the trees that house the old gods, the old ones are bone white, just like the cold ones, the cold gods. So like I said, old gods, cold gods, they might be the same thing. Then there is the description of the Black Gate. It was white werewood, and there was a face on it. A glow came from the wood, like milk and moonlight, so faint it scarcely seemed to touch anything beyond the door itself, not even Sam standing right before it. The face was old and pale, wrinkled and shrunken. It looks dead. Its mouth was closed, and its eyes. Its cheeks were sunken, its brow withered, its chin sagging. If a man could live for a thousand years and never die but just grow older, his face might come to look like that. An old and pale weird face, glowing like milk and moonlight. Well, the others have swords that glow alive with moonlight, in addition to their milk-pale skin. This gate, of course, is below the night fort, and may have been used for dark deeds by Night's King. Uh, and someone in the chat has a good point. Bratislava Peric says, Bones are not white, they're actually more off-white. And Old Bone, in particular, is sort of that off-white, cream-colored. But then again, so is milk. And that's, the, that's how the others are always described, as milky pale, bone pale. So I think we're actually supposed to think of a slightly cream-tinted white, kind of like that cool Jamie Lannister gear that he wears in A Game of Thrones in the first season. He's got the sort of the off-white, cream-colored Kingsguard duds that look so good. I I, um, if I can jump in real quick. Absolutely. It, it, pale um, has that association with death. That's always where I go to, like the Four Horsemen. And uh, the pale horse, death sits upon a pale horse and hell rides behind, or however the quote goes. Like, that's what I've always thought of. Like, it just, 
thinking of the others is just symbolically as death, you know, just as a broad, vast overstrokes. Yeah. And, and somebody also points out that, um, and I totally agree. I, th- I think pale is always used to, it's used in very significant ways by Martin along the lines of what you're talking about. Yeah. And then John Snow points out that Viserion is also said to be cream. Cream. Colored, yeah. And that's cream right. And, and of course, cream is related to milk. They're both dairy products. So, you know, I think that's, and it's, and again, also think about the moon. I think that's where all this comes from is the moon usually has a slight creamy tint to it. I mean, it looks all different colors based on atmosphere and stuff like that. But in general, the, the moon is not pure white. It's, it generally looks a little bit of that creamy white color. It's so. pale. It's described as pale in a lot of poetry and definitely. Books. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, pale moon. I mean, you, how many times have you heard that? Pale, pale moon, awarded. Moon, pale. Yeah, I'm thinking of that Moody Blues song. That's deep reference. And it's right <laughs> in the the Knight's Queen symbolism, you know, skin as pale as the moon. So pale horse, yeah, all that stuff. All that stuff is being touched on. And yeah, by the way, just in case you're wondering, I do think if one of Danny's dragons uh, gets turned cold, I think that's very possible in the books. I do think it will be Viserion, just as in the TV show. I think that makes a lot of sense. So, But it could also be that we'll just see a regular ice dragon, like not a whited dragon, but an actual ice dragon. Yeah, I like that idea. So as you can see, the others in the Weirwoods have a lot in common in terms of descriptive language. Pale bone and pale milk and a bit of moonlight to make it all glow. And lest you have any doubt, behold the Weirwood from the Veramir Sixkins prologue of A Dance with Dragons. Outside, the night was white as death. Pale thin clouds danced attendance on a silver moon while a thousand stars watched coldly. He could see the humped shapes of other huts buried beneath drifts of snow, and beyond them the pale shadow of a werewood armored in ice. This quote should be familiar as I've cited it before. Pale thin clouds dancing amidst cold star eyes watching essentially paints a portrait of the others in the sky, and below it's the pale shadow of a weirwood armored in ice. The others are, of course, often described as pale shadows and white shadows. And, of course, you know they wear ice armor. So, this weirwood is getting frozen over. Otherized, if you will. And it happens just as the army of the dead march through the village. Let me say it even more simply. A frozen weirwood looks just like an other. And an other looks a lot like the frozen spirit of a weirwood tree. This quote is also a strong piece of evidence for the partition theory that we've begun to explore in Signs and Portals, which is the idea that the others, rather than being banished altogether from the Weirwood Net, were instead banished to a partitioned-off portion of the Weirwood Net, the frozen part of the Green Sea, if you will. And we see that frozen pond, frozen lake motif used all over the place for the others. Now, when I look at the frozen Weirwood tree here, that's what I think of, a frozen-over Weirwood Net. And perhaps that's what the others need to do to make the Weirwoods habitable for them again, freeze them over. But I digress. Let's read that prologue line again. A shadow emerged from the dark of the wood, gaunt and hard as old bones, with flesh pale as milk, everywhere dappled with the gray-green of the trees. As I said, these lines really do tell the whole story in miniature. The others are spirits, exiled from the dark of the Weirwoods, whom they resemble. They are the former old ones, the old gods turned cold gods. Pale shadows armored in ice, the white walkers of the wood. Now read these lines again and imagine the others as weirwood trees. 
behind him, to right, to left. All around him the watchers stood patient, faceless, silent, the shifting patterns of their delicate armor making them all but invisible in the wood. Heart trees are occasionally called watchers, for obvious reasons, they have eyes, while Ned's gods, quote, were the old ones, the nameless, faceless gods of the Greenwood. So silent, faceless old gods, silent, faceless others. One also thinks of the green men, who are mentioned only a paragraph away from this last one that we just quoted. In the South, the last werewoods had been cut down or burned out a thousand years ago, except on the Isle of Faces, where the green men kept their silent watch. Aha, more silent watchers with symbiotic relationships with trees. Very interesting. You can really see how the others could work well as green men who have been exiled from their green wood and frozen somehow. And that's without even going to the old bones slash old ones wordplay clues. That was the whole point of this first section, to show that the others, as weird tree spirits, is well supported, and that a lot of the clues about this revolves around bones. Now, Here's an interesting thought. The old gods and the others are both faceless, right? It's a description that speaks to a hive mind or a collective consciousness, something that we know applies to the weirwood net consciousness, and which seems like it could apply to the others as well, who all seem to be identical according to the Game of Thrones prologue. The others come from the weirwoods, but the weirwoods are actually not faceless, of course. They very noticeably have bloody faces carved into them after all. So that's an important difference. The weirwoods are bone white, but they have faces. The others are bone white, but they are faceless. So this all fits very well with my proposed theory here, actually. So the others were green men back when you didn't need to carve faces in the weirwoods, back when the trees were faceless. Azor High carved faces into the trees as part of his magical invasion, and this pushed the formerly faceless green men spirits out of the weirwood net to become the faceless others. Now that we've got that established, let's take a look at some of these old bones quotes and see what we can discover. And I'm seeing some cool chat about uh, the other huts and the milkmen in the stallion that mounts the world prophecy. Wisdom Smith and Triple D are back on it. That's cool, guys. I'll have to check that out on the rewatch. I can't follow everything, obviously, in the chat while I'm reading, but I'm glad the hive mind is working here. So, got another section coming up here. Prepare yourselves. Hmm. For Space Odyssey Cut 3. Gotta read my two other dragon patrons. That's right, uh, just I'll remind you once again, Disputed Lands is mentioning in the chat that George did say the green men will come to the fore in later books. So... That is the most exciting thing about this entire theory, is it will actually get some sort of answer. We're going to see some Sir Nunos boys. Or not. Some horny we'll boys. See. Yay. <laughs> All right. Here comes the music. Tut tut, it smells like rain. This next section is brought to you by Bronze Steries of the Lily White Scales and Bronze Horns, Wingbones, and Spinal Crest a wise old dragon who riddles with sphinxes. It is said that Bronsteris might be the first person to one day figure out what actually happened during the long night. And Vesperis, the Nightbringer, the Shadowfire Dragon, 
whose scales are dark as smoke, whose horns, wing bones, and spinal crest are the color of molten silver, whose eyes are two black moons. It is said that Vesperis is the secret spawn of Meraxes and is known by some as the Phoenix of the Hellholds. So, tut-tut, it smells like rain. We aren't going to go strictly in order with these Old Bones quotes, but we will start with a couple from A Game of Thrones, in which there are four uses of the phrase Old Bones. The first is in the prologue and describes the others that slew poor Waymar, as we just saw. Of the other three, two of them are very similar and involve Old Bones acting as some sort of other detection system. Mormont reached out and clutched Tyrion tightly by the hand, You must make them understand, I tell you. My lord, the darkness is coming. There are wild things in the woods, direhoves and mammoths and snow bears the size of oryx, and I have seen darker shapes in my dreams. In your dreams, Tyrion echoed, thinking how badly he needed another strong drink. Mormont was deaf to the edge in his voice. The fisher folk near Eastwatch have glimpsed white walkers on the shore. This time Tyrion could not hold his tongue. The fisher folk of Lannisport often glimpse merlings. Denny's Malister writes that the mountain people are moving south, slipping past the Shadow Tower in numbers greater than ever before. They are running, my lord. But running from what? Lord Mormont moved to the window and stared out into the night. These are old bones, Lannister. But they have never felt a chill like this. Tell the king what I say, I pray you. Winter is coming, and when the long night falls, only the night's watch will stand between the realm and the darkness that sweeps from the north. The gods help us all if we are not ready. Well, that's kind of got our attention, right? Mormont worships the old gods, and he's currently the lord commander of the night's watch, the classic role of the last hero. And this position is implied as being classically that of a skin changer by the ever-present raven. He's got old bones, and they can detect a chill beyond that of natural winter. And he just can't help but utter the stark words, winter is coming, and to talk about the long night and the white walkers, also known as the old ones, or the cold ones, I guess we should say. Later in A Game of Thrones, after Jon and Ghost defeat the white in Mormont's chambers, with the help of some timely advice from Mormont's raven, I should add, the old bear and the young snow are talking about the event in Mormont's chambers. They're talking about John's burned hand, and we get this. Maester Aemon had given him milk of the poppy. Yet, even so, the pain had been hideous. At first it had felt as if his hands were still aflame, burning day and night. Only plunging it into basins of snow and shaved ice gave any relief at all. John thanked the gods that no one but ghosts saw him writhing on his bed, whimpering from the pain. And when at last he did sleep, he dreamt, and that was even worse. In the dream, the corpse he fought had blue eyes, black hands, and his father's face, but he dared not tell Mormont that. Dywin and Hake returned last night, the old bear said. They found no sign of your uncle, no more than the others did. I know. John had dragged himself to the common hall to sup with his friends, and the failure of the ranger's search had been all the men had been talking of. You know, Mormont grumbled, 
How is it that everyone knows everything around here? He did not seem to expect an answer. It would seem there were only two of of those creatures, whatever they were. I will not call them men. Thank the gods for that. Any more and, well, that doesn't bear thinking of. There will be more, though. I can feel it in these old bones of mine. And Maester Eamon agrees. The cold winds are rising. Summer is at an inn, and winter is coming as such this world has never seen. Winter is coming. The stark words had never sounded so grim or ominous to John as they did now. As you can see, it's basically the same usage. Mormont's old bones can detect the rise of the others, who are the old ones turned white as bone. You're probably thinking of a famous adage of Melisandre's by now, the bones remember. I can't speak for all bones, but the old bones of the weirwood-worshipping Northmen seem to remember what the cold touch of the others feels like. Also featured in that last passage, possible foreshadowing of Hot Hands John? A hand that burns day and night would come in handy on the wall to modify a well-known John quote. (laughs) Only plunging it into the cold bodies of white walkers gave any relief at all, lol. I want this to happen, by the way. Basically, it's a picture of John with Victorian's hand. It's like a burning hand. And he just goes around, like, strangling White Walkers. I, I think I'm about to elevate this from tinfoil to, like, slightly plausible theory. What were you going to say, Sanry? I was going to say, what about on the show he just, like, reaches into the Night King's heart and pulls it out with his fiery hand? Fuck yes. I'm here for that. I'm down. Cool. So, seriously, though, guys, Mormont is going beyond the premonitions of old men here and crossing over into full-blown prophecy territory. The cold winds are rising. Summer is at an end and a winter is coming such as this world has never seen. I mean, think if your boss was saying shit like that with his eyes peeled wide open on a Monday morning when you show up to work. It'd be a little disconcerting. Uh, And of course, I guess two of their dead brothers did just like wake up from the dead and try to kill them. So I guess there's a lot of disconcerting running around, but So, all right, so Mormont's old bones are in tune with the others. That makes sense, as he's the man in charge of stopping them when the story opens, the Lord Commander. We find more old bones that work this way, and this time, it makes even more sense. This quote is simply eye-popping. Gilly was crying. Me and my babe, please. I'll be your wife like Craster's. Please, Sir Crow. He's a boy, just like Nilla said he'd be. If you don't take him, they will. They? said Sam, and the raven cocked its black head and echoed, They! 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 The boy's brothers, said the woman on the left, Craster's sons. The white cold's rising out there, Crow. I can feel it in my bones. These poor old bones don't lie. They'll be here soon. The sons. Aha! Craster's wives are also the mothers of the others so their old bones can surely detect the presence of the others. It's very like Mormont's spidey sense, except it makes even more sense coming from the mothers of the others. And no, that wasn't meant to be an ice spiders joke, but it is now. Ice spidey sense. So, even better than that, Craster's wives are actually flat-out labeled as the old ones in Chet's A Storm of Swords prologue. I'm actually saving the full quote for the final Old Ones episode in two weeks, which will focus on all the instances of female Old Ones. But essentially, Chet thinks about killing Craster and taking his place 
And when he thinks about what to do with Craster's women, he thinks of putting the old ones to work. The little dickwad. Chet is truly one of the most contemptible people in A Song of Ice and Fire, which has its share of contemptible people. It must be noted. But yes, these mothers of the others should represent women of the green man race. Perhaps simply children of the forest, or perhaps they represent the weirwoods themselves. They're either Night's Queen figures, or Nissa Nissa figures, or both, depending on how all that sorts out. And as we can see, they are old ones, with old bones, that can sense the others. Who are the old ones turned cold ones? The old gods turned cold gods. It's wordplay. So, it's actually pretty straightforward. I have more to say about this quote, but it's kind of all right there. The others are descended from the old ones. The mothers of the others have the old bones that can sense the others. One thing that I will note is that it's interesting that in order to save Gilly's baby from being given to the others, he's given to the Black Brothers. Feels like there could be some symbolic import in that. Oh, so much baby stealing. Now, jumping forward to A Dance with Dragons, there's an Old Bones reference in the absolutely awful Ramsey jane Poole rape scene that we kind of have to mention, albeit briefly. I don't really want to linger on this or even pull quotes from it, so I'll just mention that Ramsey says Jane is dry as an old bone. This is important because Jane is playing the role of a Night's Queen figure here. She's described as corpse-like and frozen as she pretends to be a Stark maiden. Thus, she's in line with Craster's wives as a mother of the other's figure. Now, there's one other incident of old bones being able to feel something coming on, although this time it isn't winter and the others that the old bones can sense, at least... It doesn't appear that way at first. What's really great is that, like Craster's wives, the person with old bones is also labeled as an old one. So once again, we see the confluence of old bones and old ones. And that's one of the things that sells me on the whole idea. So it's wandering Septon Maribald, who brags about the comfort of sleeping beneath the hedges of the Seven Kingdoms when need be. The old ones are the best, he says. You'll recall that Maribald was very tree-like and very garth-like in his youth, being full of sap and having a habit of deflowering as many maidens as possible. Now in a feast for crows, Brienne, Pod, Hylehunt, and Septon Maribald come to the inn of the crossroads, now in possession of Willow and the other orphans protected by the Brotherhood without banners. The inn is a well-known weirwood symbol with its gallows tree, weirwood stigmata innkeep Mashaheddle, and its former weir status— it used to be built over the river before it moved, uh, just like a wooden fishing weir, and people would actually fish out of the windows of the inn. So it's a really vivid fishing weir symbol. Now, throughout this scene, the idea of the inn being a home for ghostly stag men and children of the forest is spelled out. As they approach, there's the famous line about the ghost smith who turns out to be Gendry. A forge, Sir Hyle said. Either they have themselves a smith, or the old innkeep's ghost is making another iron dragon. And then when Gendry emerges a little bit later... Robbers. Brienne turned and saw a ghost. Rinley, no hammer blow to the heart could have felled her half so hard. My lord? She gasped. Lord? The boy pushed back a lock of black hair that had fallen across his eyes. I'm just a smith. He's not Rinley, Brienne realized. Rinley is dead. Rinley died in my arms, a man of one and twenty. This is only a boy, a boy who looked as Rinley had the first time he came to Tarth, no younger. A ghost stag, 
and there can be no doubt as Gendry is called a ghost twice in rapid succession. And when they first ask for lodging at the inn, we get this line. We'll have silver, else you can sleep in the woods with the dead men. They demand a tribute of stags, in other words, or else they can sleep in the woods with the dead men. A dead wood is the way the haunted forest north of the wall is often described, so we have the image of a weirwood surrounded by dead woods with dead men. This is basically identical to the Renly death scene, where his magical emerald castle, alive with light, is surrounded by an army which looks like a forest of tall naked trees bereft of leaves and life. I bet the others are lurking about, and the children are here too. All these children, Brienne said to the girl Willow, are they your sisters, brothers, kin, and cousins? No, Willow was staring at her in a way that she knew well. They're just, I don't know, the sparrows bring them here sometimes. Others find their own way. If you're a woman, why are you dressed up like a man? Septon Marimbold answered, Lady Brienne is a warrior maid upon a quest. Just now, though, she is in need of a dry bed and a warm fire, as are we all. My old bones say it's gonna rain again, and soon. Do you have rooms for us? No, said the boy Smith. Yes, said the girl Willow. They glared at one another. Then Willow stumped her foot. They have food, Gendry. The little ones are hungry. She whistled, and more children appeared as if by magic. Ragged boys with unshorn locks crept from under the porch, and furtive girls appeared in the windows overlooking the yard. Some clutched crossbows, wound and loaded. They could call it Crossbow Inn, Sir Hyle suggested. Orphan Inn would be more apt, thought Brienne. All right, so there's the old bones quote. Maribald feels a storm coming, and so his old bones tell him to take shelter at the nearest weirwood symbol. A weirwood inn really is better than an old one's hedge, of course, although really they're the same thing. This one has ghost stags and lots of children, children who appear as if by magic. That was a nice line, huh? I liked that one. The storm that Maribald's old bones detects is the lightning storm that comes with the arrival of the bloody mummers, who, spoiler alert, seem to be stand-ins for the others, Rorge and Biter in particular. I'm not going to go into exploring the entire Bloody Mummer symbolism because we got to keep this thing on track, but th- uh, take my word for it. And it fits the pattern very well. Every time someone's old bones feel something coming, it was winter or the others in particular. And it goes without saying that you notice the line, others find their own way to the inn. They must come from the dark wood full of dead men. Giant tree bones. This next section is brought to you by the priesthood of starry wisdom, Jimmy Wayne Dane, the unshockable Uctena, whose words are the waning crescent rain falls mainly on the Danes. Thomas Mondragon means moon dragons, a.k.a. AKA Tom the Pan Doubter Doubter, a.k.a. Tom O'Elevens. Rialto the Markless, the starsmith, he who forges and was forged. Lady Kay of House Archer, huntress of the Wolfswood, and guardian of Maddie Squirrelsbane, the mighty Direweenie. Alana Prestane of Bravos, keeper of the notorious Glorious Cloister. Molly Anissa, keeper of the Moonsinger's Law. Sir Anis Frey of the Loudwater. Betharo Moontown, fisher of the Shining Sea. Ash Rose, Queen of Sevens, mistress of mythology. Lady Silverwing, last child of the forest, keeper of all leeward shores. 
Codfish the Steelbender, whose words are, Under the sea, all metalworkers are codfish. Stone Dancer the Mind's Eye, Whirlmaster of the Trident. And Lady Dane the Twilight Star, Daughter of Frost Giants, Implanter of Fireworms, and Official Secret Keeper of Story Wisdom. There are a couple of Old Bones quotes that simply relate to the old gods and the weirwoods in a more general sense. But this will lead us to talk of giants in due course. For example, there's this little gem staring back at us from the center of Lord Bloodraven's cave. Seated on his throne of roots in the great cavern, half corpse and half tree, Lord Brynden seemed less a man than some ghastly statue made of twisted wood, old bone, and rotted wool. The only thing that looked alive in the pale ruin that was his face was his one red eye, burning like the last coal in a dead fire, surrounded by twisted roots and tatters of leathery white skin hanging off a yellowed skull. A green seer statue of old bone. Lord Blood Raven is simply becoming like the weirwood tree that he's merging with. This doesn't mean Blood Raven has anything to do with the others, which I do not believe that he does, save for the fact that the classic role of the three-eyed crow and the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch figures are chiefly responsible for stopping the others. Rather, this is simply showing us that the old ones were green seers, that the old one's natural home is the weirwood net. I will say that if Lord Commander Mormont's old bones can sense the others coming, it's a safe bet that this ghastly statue made of twisted wood and old bone knows when they are coming as well. Blood Raven, connected to the weirwood net, is basically the ultimate White Walker early detection system, right? And the last use of old bones from a Game of Thrones concerns the giants, but it's preceded by the moment when Osha the Wildling explains to Bran that the rustling of the weirwood leaves is actually the voice of the old gods. Bran listened. It's only the wind, he said after a moment, uncertain. The leaves are rustling. Who do you think sends the wind, if not the gods? She seated herself across the pool from him, clinking faintly as she moved. Micken had fixed iron manacles to her ankles, with a heavy chain between them. She could walk so long as she kept her strides small, but there was no way for her to run or climb or mount a horse. They see you, boy. They hear you talking. That rustling, that's them talking back. What are they saying? They're sad. Your brother will get no help from them, not where he's going. The old gods have no power in the south. The werewoods there were all cut down thousands of years ago. How can they watch your brother when they have no eyes? Bran had not thought of that. It frightened him. If even the gods could not help his brother, what hope was there? Maybe Osha wasn't hearing them right. He cocked his head and tried to listen again. He thought he could hear the sadness now, but nothing more than that. After Hodor bursts out of the foliage, naked and wet from his swim, Osha remarks that he must have giant's blood, and Bran responds, Maester Lewin says there are no more giants. He says they're all dead like the children of the forest. All that's left of them are old bones in the earth that men turn up with plows from time to time. To which Osha says that Maester Lewin should go north of the wall, where he'll find some giants, or maybe they'll find him. Now, as we've discussed in the last two episodes... Because the green men seem to be kind of like very tall children of the forest, it's possible that some of the ancient legends that talk about 
Giants and the Children of the Forest together are actually talking about the green men, who are the old ones. If nothing else, the Giants and the Children are two of the so-called old races, a classification that includes the Giants and the Children and some say the Others, according to the World of Ice and Fire. Now, Wiz the Smith does make one other observation here, which is that the line about men pulling the old bones out of the earth could allude to the eviction of the old ones from their natural home. In the earth isn't quite in the trees, but the point is that if the others are made from the spirits of the dead old ones who are resting happily in their cozy weirwood net tombs before Azor Ahai invaded, evicting them from the weirwood net is akin to digging up their graves and letting their spirits out. One thinks of Ygritte telling John about Mance's search for the Horn of Winter. I'm crying because we never found the Horn of Winter. We opened half a hundred graves and let all those shades loose in the world. and never found the Horn of Joramun to bring down this cold thing. As you can see, unearthing old bones of giants lets loose shades into the world. Now here it just says graves, but elsewhere it specified that Mance was actually digging up giants' graves, apparently because he must have thought Joramun was a giant. Perhaps he was just a little extra tall, one of those horned lords that we hear so much about on a certain podcast. Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire, loose from MeansLightBringer.com. Recall also that Martin relates the others to the Ice She, the elf-like spirits who were tied specifically to burial mounds. Ice She literally means people of the mounds. And of course, I learned that from Ideas of Ice and Fire's video about this very subject so many years ago. Anyways, one thinks of the Barrowlands of the North, and in particular, of the Great Barrow at Barrowton, where the bones of the quote-unquote first king are said to rest, and you'll recall that there are clues that this first king may have been Garth, or thought by some to be Garth. Additionally, the Barrows of the North are often occupied by giants, so links between Garth, Barrows, and giants already exist, even before we found this quote about them having old bones. We've also already picked up on the idea that our green men must be taller than humans and children of the forest, so giant Garth old ones makes a ton of sense. Garth the Green fathered John the Oak on a giantess. Robert is a giant when he wears his antlered helm and has a giant's strength as well. And weirwoods are frequently called giants, such as when the Winterfell heart tree is said to be standing like some pale giant frozen in time. The hammer of the waters awoke giants in the earth, and with everything we've just discovered, that almost sounds like a Zorhai's moon meteor ritual, the cause of the hammer, awakening the others from the spirits of the old ones who were buried in the weirwood giants. I mean, that's what I'm claiming, right? The others are old one spirits driven out of the weirwoods when Zorhai dropped the moon meteor hammer and did his dark magic, which may well have happened on the Isle of Faces. Now check out this quote, about giants and weirwoods. This is kind of a companion to the Vermeer prologue, Weirwood, which was a pale shadow armored in ice. I, said Big Bucket Wall, Red Ralu means nothing here. You will only make the old gods angry. They are watching from their island. The crofter's village stood between two lakes, the, the larger dotted with small wooded islands that punched up through the ice, like the frozen fist of some drowned giant. From one such island rose a weirwood, gnarled and ancient, its bowl and branch as white as the surrounding snows. Eight days ago, Asha had walked out with Ali Mormont to have a closer look at its slitted red eyes and bloody mouth. It's only sap, she told herself, 
the red sap that flows inside these werewoods. But her eyes were unconvinced. Seeing was believing, and what they saw was frozen blood. You Northmen brought these snows upon us, insisted Corliss Pinney. You and your demon trees. Relora will save us. So the wooded islands punch up from one of the frozen lakes like the frozen fists of some drowned giant. That sentence makes a ton of sense now. If the weirwood is the green sea, then a frozen lake represents the idea of the transformed weirwoods, the frozen weirwood net, the frozen green sea, etc. The weirwood here is implied as drowned as well as frozen. Not only the frozen fists, but the white as snow weirwood branches. Aha! I lied about the weirwood white only being described as bone white. This is actually the one exception, so I didn't really lie, just, you know, anyways. Now, taken together, this is a frozen weirwood drowned in the frozen lake. Actually, this implied weirwood giant is only partially submerged since his fists are poking up through the ice, and now it really sounds like Dante's Lucifer, trapped in the frozen lake in the ninth circle of hell, an idea which has strongly influenced the others. Like I said, it's very like the frozen weirwood in the Veramir prologue, and the symbolism here just screams out freezing of the weirwoods. That's got to be the same idea as turning green men into others, since green men and the others are both analogous to the trees. And just to follow up on the earlier point, waking giants in the earth could mean a lot of things, but you can see that it could imply creating the others from the green men. And what I think is that a lot of things happened right around the Hammer of the Waters event, which kind of symbolically are waking giants in the earth. You know, like we woke the moon meteor giants from the moon. That's part of it. Uh, we, we saw, for example, in a grove of ash, we saw the scene where John meets Woon Woon. He's sitting inside the weirwood grove of nine with a bunch of starving wildling, uh, you know, escapees from the Battle of the Wall. John and the rangers sneak up on him and the giant awakening is like a boulder coming to life and he pounds the ground. So it's like giants awakening the earth, but it's also like the moon exploding at the same time. On and on and on. So that's how I interpret giants in the earth. It's a multifaceted thing. Just as if like Lightbringer, you could say, well, what is Lightbringer? Is it a sword? Is it a kid? Is it the dragons? Is it the moon meteor? Well, it's kind of all of them, right? So So that's pretty funny, right? I like that one, the drowned giant. And if I could go further and just vamp a little bit, there's two lakes and there's a watchtower in the middle. So... This is, we're going to get into this in Signs and Portals, but this is a diagram we see all the time. The two lakes are the two moons, and the thing in the middle would be the weirwood tree, the cosmic axis. And so if you picture the moons like a mobile turning around, orbiting the Earth. So the cosmic axis runs through Earth. That's the cosmic tree. And you got your two moons spinning around. So when we look at the two lakes, you see one of them has the frozen giant under them. And the other does not. So it's kind of interesting. And, of course, um, this is what I call the Penny Tree layout. And it was discovered by Painkiller Jane. Sir Arlen of Penny Tree is who Dunk uh, squires for. And Penny Tree is a little town that exists between the teats, quote-unquote. Two mountains that are look like boobs and are called the teats. And so you've got this whole... Anyway, uh, we'll, yeah, so. Booby Mountain. Yes, it is. Uh, and of course, the penny tree is a great weirwood symbol. It's got pennies nailed to it, which makes it a lightning rod. So you get the whole lightning struck tree kind of deal going on. Yes. 
You may recall this quote from a Game of Thrones that features our favorite giant horned lord and our favorite Ned traveling south to King's Landing and riding away from the main column into the Barrowlands. The rising sun sent fingers of light through the pale white mist of dawn. A wide plain spread out beneath them, bare and brown, its flatness here and there relieved by long, low hummocks. Ned pointed them out to his king, the barrows of the first men. Robert frowned. Have we ridden onto a graveyard? These barrows are everywhere in the north, your grace, Ned told him. This land is old. And cold, Robert grumbled, pulling his cloak more tightly around himself. So old and cold. Cold ones and old ones. Old gods and cold gods. And there they are. We see both a stag man and those morning ghost dawn mists that we saw after Renly's death. Exactly the same phenomenon. During this conversation, Robert also says, Gods be cursed, and the stone has already been set, and the others take your honor. As with Robert's scenes in the crypts, there is heavy death foreshadowing here for Robert, who could feel the cold touch of the barrow bones calling to him. More than anything, seeing those same morning ghosts that we saw at Renly's death, here in the Barrowlands, as Robert's death is foreshadowed, well, and this is also the place where Garth himself may have been buried. This kind of stuff just makes my day, let's just say that. All right, so from giants with old bones to dwarves with old bones. Farther on, they fell in behind a smaller elephant, white as old bone, and pulling an ornate cart. Is an ox cart an ox cart without an ox? Tyrion asked his captor. When that sally got no response, he lapsed back into silence, contemplating the rolling rump of the white dwarf elephant ahead of them. Valantis was overrun with white dwarf elephants as they drew closer to the black wall and the crowded districts near the long bridge. They saw a dozen of them. Aha, I tricked you. Those white as old bone dwarf elephants are actually giants too. Plus the term white dwarf has to make us think of white dwarf stars. That's cool. It makes the elephants symbols of weirwoods that you can ride to the stars just like the astral projection horse symbolism that is anchored in Yggdrasil and Sleipnir, or the Weirwood Sea Dragon Boat in which you can sail the cosmic ocean. So just to make sure you, everyone got that, you can ride the elephants. They're white as old bones, so they're like Weirwoods that you can ride, but they're called white dwarves, which makes you think of stars. And so, therefore, they are Weirwood symbols that you can ride to the stars. And, oh, yes! There's a dozen of them, a dozen white dwarf elephants, which read as either a dozen weirwoods or more likely a dozen giant weirwood warriors. Maybe some green zombies there. Finally, notice that Volantis, a city of black-fused stone built by dragon lords, is overrun with white dwarf old bone elephants. The suggestion here is dragon-associated black stone ideas, a.k.a. moon meteors and greasy black stone, having a link to the old ones and the weirwoods. That's something we already suppose, since the hammer event was really a moon meteor impact, and we've even speculated about the oily black stone on the Isle of Faces, or in the heart of winter. All right, we're talking about, ah yes, the dozen dwarf elephants overrunning Volantis. Um, I see the chat talking about that. I guess, you know, that's one of those things where we can maybe come back to this in a Q&A uh, next week. My birthday stream is going to be a Q&A. It's my birthday, so I'm not going to make a work hard and get a script. We're going to have a big fat party. We're going to sing. 
silly songs and Mallory's got something planned. I'm going to have on as many guests as I can. It's going to be stupid. We're going to answer questions. Uh, then, We're going to so, break the internet. Yeah, something. We'll break something. And uh, we'll we'll do a little discussion. So maybe we'll come back to these dwarf elephants and Volantis here. I think it really refers to the connection between Blackstone and Weirwoods. And I really, really like the idea that there's a Blackstone on the Isle of Faces and that the Weirwoods there are literally containing the poison of the Meteor Stones so that Westeros doesn't turn into a shy. I'm, uh, I'm liking that idea the more I think about it. But let's keep going with the script here. And since we just did one Tyrion scene from A Dance with Dragons, let's do another. Though this one comes outside of Meereen in the command tent of the Second Sons. You can talk of old times later, after I am done explaining why my head would be of more use to you upon my shoulders, you will find, Lord Plume, that I can be very generous to my friends. If you doubt me, ask Bronn, ask Shaga, son of Dolph, ask Timit, son of Timit. And who would they be, ask the man called Inkpots, good men, who pledged me their swords and prospered greatly by that service. He shrugged. Oh, very well. I lied about the good part. They're bloodthirsty bastards like you lot. Might be, said Brown Ben, or might be you just made up some names. Shaga, did you say? Is that a woman's name? His teats are big enough. Next time we meet, I'll peek beneath his breeches to be sure. Is that a Savas set over there? Bring it out and we'll have that game. But first, I think, a cup of wine. My throat is dry as old bone, and I can see that I have a deal of talking to do. Here's the significance of this quote. It's another instance of an Azor High person winning a new army with a single stroke. Or in this case, several hundred strokes of Tyrion's pen as he promises half the gold and casterly rock to the Second Sons. And that comes in the chapter, um, it's a T-Wow chapter actually, but it's the one that occurs right after this one in the Order of Tyrion chapters. So the Second Sons, with their broken sword sigil, clearly have some kind of strong Azor Ahai reborn last hero association. So I'm not sure if this is Azor Ahai gaining control of the others, or maybe the last hero getting his green zombie knights watched together. I'd actually lean towards the latter here, but I don't really want to do a deep dive on the Second Sons right now, and I don't think we need to. We can simply observe that it's one or the other, and that Tyrion is an Azor Ahai reborn figure of some kind, and he's using his voice to turn the tide of battle here, a voice that is as dry as an old bone. So you could say Azor Ahai is speaking out of the weirwood net. That's another way of saying it. And if you look at uh, the city Mirin, you could also say it Marine, as in M-A-R-I-N-E. So it's kind of on the edge of the Green Sea. It's a watery city. It's ruled by Danny. Um, it's got pyramids, so it's Atlantis, guys. It's it's pyramids under the sea. It's Atlantis. Uh, I don't I don't know, but the point is, uh, what is the point? I lost track of my train of thought here. Basically, oh yeah, so so Tyrion is having a voice as dry as old bone is like an Azor High or a last hero figure being able to speak through the weirwood net and look what he's doing. He's turning the tide of battle and winning an army over. So that's something's going on there. Like I said, there's there's a lot of old bone quotes, so I couldn't take the time to like just totally hash every scene to death. Got to keep it moving, but perhaps we can follow up on the old on the Q and A and figure out what exactly is going on. Yes, Hollow Hill Pyramids was the Smith. You get a sticker. 
So even cooler, in the next Tyrion chapter after this one, which is an early release T-Wild chapter, like I mentioned, Tyrion is playing that game of Syvas in this same tent. And we get an amazing white dragon weirwood symbol. This Mormont's long sword was in his hand. As the rider turned, Sir Jorah thrust it through his throat. The point came out the back of the Yunkishman's neck, red and wet. Blood bubbled from his lips and down his chin. The man took two wobbly steps and fell across the Savas board, scattering the wooden armies everywhere. He twitched a few more times, grasping the blade of Mormont's sword with one hand as the other clawed feebly at the overturned table. Only then did the youngish men seem to realize that he was dead. He lay face down on the carpet in a welter of red blood and oily black roses. Sir Jorah wrenched his sword free of the dead man's neck. Blood ran down its fullers. The white Savas dragon ended up at Tyrion's feet. He scooped it off the carpet and wiped it on his sleeve. But some of the Yonkish blood had collected in the fine grooves of the carving, so the pale wood seemed veined with red. All hail our beloved queen, Daenerys, be she alive or be she dead. He tossed the bloody dragon in the air, caught it, grinned. We have always been the queen's men, announced Brown Ben Plum. Rejoining the Yunkai was just a plot. So as you can see, George Martin is specifically tying the changing of sides of the Second Sons to Tyrion, and he's dropping a clear weirwood symbol right in the thick of it. And it's also a white dragon, so we have to think of Bloodraven here. And really the message would be Green Seer Dragon or Dragons in the Weirwood Net. I also love how the scene gives us the red, bloody sword calling card of Azor High, and remember that Jorah has a demon mask tattoo at this point in the story, right next to the weirwood dragon symbol. It's a nice reinforcement of my notion that Azor High's Lightbringer ritual was tied to his forcing his way into the weirwood. Even the sequence here is stunning. Lightbringer is forged. Then the blood of the victim literally colors the white wooden Sivas piece red, making it seem veined with red. To my eyes, it looks like another confirmation that Azor Ahai's killing of Nissa Nissa was the beginning of the carving of faces into the trees and permanently altered or bloodied the weirwood net. And don't forget about the oily black roses. Those symbolize the black moon meteors, and again, the sequence is perfect as they appear on the ground in a pool of blood after Lightbringer has been forged. That's the same blood that went into the veins of the white weirwood dragon, if you can smell what I'm cooking here. And if I could just vamp and add uh, just a tiny more analysis, check this out. So it says the white Sivash dragon ended up at Tyrion's feet. And he scooped it off the carpet and wiped it off on his sleeve, but some of the Yunkish blood had collected in the fine grooves of the carving, so the pale wood seemed veined with red. All hail our beloved Queen Daenerys, be she alive or dead. He tossed the bloody dragon in the air, caught it, grinned. We have always been the Queen's men. So he's kind of like holding up this bloody weirwood dragon symbol and saying, all hail Queen Daenerys. And that makes a ton of sense because Nissa Nissa goes into the weirwoods and Danny is a Nissa Nissa figure who has tons of symbolism about merging with the Green Sea. And so the symbol of a weirwood dragon with the blood of a sacrifice, the moon sacrifice, having just created the bloody weirwood symbol, this is Daenerys in a way, at least in the classic Nissa Nissa weirwood goddess way. And I'm also, I'll I'll point this out in a future episode, but think of um, 
the House of the Undying Vision, where it says Daenerys, you know, a thousand bloodstained hands reached up to to Danny as her mother. And for Danny, this is a call out to all the slaves when they lifted her hands to her and called her Misa when she set everyone free or whatever. However, a thousand bloodstained hands is also the description of the weirwood leaves from a Game of Thrones right at the beginning. And so you have this idea of Danny as the Nissa Nissa weirwood goddess held up by a thousand weirwood leaves. And that, to me, says astral projection, weirwood tree, shit. You know what I mean? So when I get back to the uh, weirwood compendium to finish it off with the Sleipnir astral projection horse stuff, we'll go into that further. Anyways, that is that section. Are you not entertained? Yang Tar, the Midnight Light, the Shadowskin Master of the Lands of Always Bjork. The Bloody Tide, Lord of the Green Blood, the Merling Slayer of the Seven Seas. Crowfood's Daughter of the Disputed Lands. Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves, Bear Mama of the Sacred Den. Tom Cruise, sitting on a couch drinking a Diet Coke next to a little picture of Winston Churchill. Grin of Long Lake, the Smiling Ranger, and Freezer of the White Knife. Stella de Silvestri, also called Yellow Stella, Mistress of Arcana. Relore Girl, Mistress of the Pointy End. Black-Eyed Lily, the Dark Phoenix. Sir Cosmo of House Dayspring, whose words are, We walk at dawn. Enovi, Shadowbinder of the Eastern Mountains and Lakes. The Black Maester Azizel, Lord of the Feasible and Keeper of the Records, whose rod and mask and ring smell of coffee. And Lady Danelle Bulwer, Soaring Bat of Blackjack Mountain. And since I've only got two more, I'll just mention the Venus of Ostkik, Starry Lady of the Dragonstones, a longtime patron. I think she's a two-year patron. And another two-year patron, Archmaester Emma, founder of the Maiden Maesters and Keeper of the Two-Headed Sphinx. Thank you, guys. Yes, it is an Arya pun. Arya not entertained. Because we're going to talk about Arya. The fun thing about following uh, a specific quote, like old ones or old bones, is that it, it takes you all over the place. You end up skipping around all different characters, but finding themes that are in common. So it's uh, pretty fun. Uh, there's only one old bones occurrence in A Clash of Kings. And it belongs to Arya's supervisor at Harrenhal called Pink Eye. And I think the thing to look for here are others double entendres. This picks up just after Jaqen and the company have helped Arya free the captive Northmen, and after Jaqen changes his face and leaves Arya. Velamogulis, she said once more, and the stranger in Jaqen's clothes bowed to her and stalked off through the darkness, cloak swirling. She was alone with the dead men. They deserved to die, Arya told herself, remembering all those Sir Armory Lorch had killed at the holdfast by the lake. The cellars under Kingspire were empty when she returned to her bed of straw. She whispered out names to her pillow, and when she was done, she added Valamagulis in a small, soft voice, wondering what it meant. Come dawn, Pinkeye and the others were back, all but one boy who'd been killed in the fighting for no reason that anyone could say. Pink Eye went up alone to see how matters stood by light of day, complaining all the while that his old bones could not abide steps. When he returned, he told them that Harrenhal had been taken, 
them bloody mummers killed some of Sir Armory's lot in their beds, and the rest at a table after they were good and drunk. The new lord will be here before the day is out, with his whole host. He's from the wild north, up where that wall is, and they say he's a hard one. So the hard one is Roos Bolton, who is, of course, symbolically aligned with Knight's King and the others. You'll notice how Pink Eye's very approximate geography has Roos Bolton as from the wild north up where the wall is, implying Roos as a Knight's King invading Westeros from the wall. Pink Eye has the old bones, and we see the phrase Pink Eye and the others. So, Pink Eye with his old bones and the others with him, they're all about to serve an evil Azor High Knight's King figure, and these figures usually command the others. This sequence feels similar to the Stannis and Renly one again, with Roos in the Stannis role as one who basically just has an army go over to him after some key assassination, or or three, uh, with that army representing the others. Now, we've looked at these scenes before in detail in the Weirwood Goddess series, and both Arya and Jaqen seem to be some kind of Weirwood assassin figure. Arya is playing a child of the forest role, or maybe a ghost child of the forest, climbing in the kingdom of the leaves and living in caverns beneath Kingspire Tower, which is another burning tree weirwood symbol. Jaqen has red and white hair, like the weirwood, and he even steps out from behind the weirwood after Arya prays to the old gods. Was that enough? Maybe she should pray aloud if she wanted the old gods to hear. Maybe she should pray longer. Sometimes her father had prayed a long time, she remembered, but the old gods had never helped him. Remembering that made her angry. You should have saved him, she scolded the tree. He prayed to you all the time. I don't care if you help me or not. I don't think you could even if you wanted to. The gods are not mocked, girl. The voice startled her. She leapt to her feet and drew her wooden sword. Jack and Hagar stood so still in the darkness that he seemed one of the trees. A man comes to hear a name. One and two, and then comes three. A man would have done. The gods are not mocked, girl. It's a pretty, pretty nice quote there. I love that one. And as you can see, I'm not exactly reading into things to suggest that Jaqen is playing the part of some sort of emanation of the tree. I mean, it kind of says it right there. But I've never thought of him as an other because he just doesn't do other things. Plus that half-red hair. He seems more like a walking blood raven or a barrack figure. Maybe like John will be like when he's resurrected with red eyes, white hair, and hot hands. Basically, the good kind of Azor High Reborn, the weirwood warrior. And often I think of this person as either the three-eyed crow or his servant, the last hero, to put it in basic terms. These figures are always pro-Night's Watch and pro-Weirwood. And indeed, they usually look like weirwoods to some extent. So Arya herself is symbolically part of the Night's Watch, as she is a Stark as she joins the Night's Watch recruits for a time, and as she kills a runaway Night's Watchman, the singer Daron in Braavos, which was, of course, correct and lawful for her to do as a Stark enforcing the law of the Night's Watch oaths. Here in Harrenhal, she's combining her copious Child of the Forest symbolism with that whole weirwood assassin role that I was talking about, very like her mentor, Jaqen. And to be honest, she kind of reminds me a bit of Melisandre's Shadow Baby. A man hears the whispers of sand and glass. A man will not sleep until a girl unsays a certain name. Now, evil child. I'm not an evil child, she thought. I am a direwolf, and the ghost in Harrenhal. An evil child and a ghost. And she's a child of Catelyn, 
a weirwood goddess figure. Just as the shadow baby comes from Melisandre, a weirwood goddess Nissa Nissa figure, so too does Arya. This symbolism is built on in the scene where they set the captive Northmen free because Arya and Jaqen come directly from the heart tree in the godswood to the scene of the killing. They are physically coming from the weirwood tree as assassins, just as Arya comes from her mother, who symbolizes a weirwood tree. I've often compared the Shadow Baby Assassins to the Night's Watch, if you'll recall, as they're both black shadows, and they're both symbols of Azor High Reborn, and they both come from the weirwoods in the sense that the original Night's Watch were the green zombies who were resurrected through weirwood magic by all indications. So just to button that up, Arya herself already has Night's Watch affiliations. She's acting a lot like the Shadow Baby here, which itself has Night's Watch parallels. Think about Arya's nicknames. Evil Child, Blood Child, Dark Heart. That could all be... I mean, it's all Shadow Baby talk, straight up. So, just like the Shadow Baby Child of Mel and Stannis that kills Renly, Arya's assassinations are what triggers the army going over to the evil Azor High Night's King figure, who is Roose in this situation. Arya even serves Roose as his cupbearer for a time and wears his sigil on her chest. Of course, that doesn't last long. She flees Harrenhal and goes on about her way. I'm not sure if that makes her one of those good other rescued other figures, but it would fit with her Night's Watch associations at the very least. Now, there's actually another Old Bones quote that involves Arya's chapters in the Riverlands, so we'll serve that one up next. Arya has just had that conversation with Ned Dane about Ashar Dane and Ned Stark's suspected love affair at Harrenhal with Arya storming off, angry at the idea that her father could have ever loved someone else. It was Harwin who rode up beside her in the end. Where do you think you're going, milady? You shouldn't just run off. There are wolves in these woods, and worse things. Soon after this ominous description of, quote, the woods, we get this. The village was just where Notch had promised it would be. They took shelter in a stone stable. Only half a roof remained. But that was half a roof more than any other building in the village. It's not a village. It's only black stones and old bones. Did the Lannisters kill the people who lived there? Arya asked as she helped Angai dry the horses. No, he pointed. Look at how thick the moss grows on the stones. No one's moved them for a long time, and there's a tree growing out of the wall there. See? This place was put to the torch a long time ago. This quote is pretty great. It's not a village, it's only black stones and old bones. Black stones and old bones? Trees growing out of black stones? Is this the Isle of Faces, or what? Actually, it's not. It's a village near the High Heart, which is actually close to the God's Eye as well. They have sort of in between the God's Eye and the High Heart, actually. So they've just come from the High Heart, where the ghost of the High Heart gave prophecies amidst the Weirwood Circle. We'll come back to the ghost of the High Heart in a moment because she's labeled as an old one. But first, let's take a look at Thoros peering into a fire amidst these black stones and old bones. Thoros sat before it cross-legged, devouring the flames with his eyes, just as he had a top high heart. Arya watched him closely, and once his lips moved, and she thought she heard him mutter, River Run. And then a moment later, Thoros suddenly bursts from his reverie and exclaims, Lannisters, Thoros said, roaring red and gold. He lurched to his feet and went to Lord Beric. Lim and Tom wasted no time joining them. 
After conferring, they decide to tell Arya just what it is that Thoros saw. The Red Priest squatted down beside her. My lady, he said, the Lord granted me a view of River Run, an island in a sea of fire, it seemed. The flames were leaping, lions with long crimson claws. And how they roared, a sea of Lannisters, my lady. River Run will soon come under attack. Arya felt as though he'd punched her in the belly. No, sweetling, said Thoros, the flames do not lie. Sometimes I read them wrongly, blind fool that I am, but not this time, I think. The Lannisters will soon have River Run under siege. Rob will beat them. Arya got a stubborn look. He'll beat them like he did before. Your brother may be gone, said Thoros. Your mother as well. I did not see them in the flames. This wedding, the old one spoke of. A wedding on the twins. She has her own ways of knowing things, that one. The werewoods whisper in her ear when she sleeps. If she says your mother is gone to the twins... Aha, so the ghost of the high heart is an old one. That's no shock. We'll talk about this more in the next episode when we focus on the female old one's quotes. But she is most likely half Chot of the Forest. She has that red eye, white hair coloring that is shared by Ghost the Direwolf, Blood Raven, and Jaken. And don't forget, Arya actually compares the Ghost of the High Heart to Ghost the Direwolf in that scene. The Ghost of the High Heart is what we've been calling the Weirwood Goddess, the spirit of Nissa Nissa inside the Weirwood Net. Or we might simply say the voice of the Weirwoods, as Nissa Nissa's ghost seems to have become the Weirwood Net. So interestingly, both Thoros with his flames and the Ghost of the High Heart with her Weirwood whisperings are detecting the Red Wedding coming. The Brotherhood Without Banners here, having access to both sources of intel, have put two and two together and figured out not to go to Riverrun. It's one of the few examples of people using prophecy correctly, I guess. So the star of the show in this quote that we just read is the covert God's eye symbolism. Thoros talks about an island in a sea of fire, with the sea of fire also being equated with roaring Lannister lions. So an island in a lake of fire, which is like a lion. That's the God's eye, all right. The God's eye symbolism, of course, equates the Isle of Faces with the eclipsing moon and the lake with the sun being eclipsed. And so we find the lake is described as looking as though it was on fire, and it reflects with the blinding light of the sun, or it looks like a sheet of sun-hammered metal, and so on and so forth. While the Isle of Faces has, well, faces, like the man in the moon lunar face. And more importantly, it has weirwoods, which are equated with the moon on many occasions. And of course, we even see weirwood moon faces, and moon doors made of weirwood. So it's not hard to see how that works. So, a weirwood moon island in a lake of solar fire. That's the combined sky-ground God's eye symbolism. And here we have a good, strong reference to it. River Run as the Isle of Faces, surrounded by a lake of solar lion fire. Even River Run works well here, as it brings in the James Joyce cyclical concept of time, which applies to the weirwoods. So, in between the God's eye and the high heart, we get black stones and old bones, Beric Ahai and his merry band, then a sorcerer gazing into the flames and seeing a vision that evokes the god's eye. The vision reminds him of what the old one, weirwood ghost lady, told him. Oh, by the way, I'm not trying to interpret this too elaborately. I just mostly want to point out the confluence of ideas here. Old ones, black stones, 
and lots of clues about the Isle of Faces. This next section is called Rattlin' Bones, and it is brought to you by the Sacred Order of the Black Hand, Sir Stoyles of Long Branch, Seeker of Pale Blood, Count Magpie the Rude, the Dinky Giant, Hornblower of the Oslo Fjord, the Lady of Stella Reason and Maleficence, Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackroom, Sworn Alesmith to House Stark, Grand Master of the Zithomancer's Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz. Poseidon of the Dragonglass Sea, the Orcish Priest. Ridiculous Ed Tolay, the Firebeard of the Dragonglass Forge, whose eyes are like pale morning mist. And Westeros of the Cosmic Mill, the Unchained Uncle, Host of Bards, he of the Blue Blood. Welcome to Sundays, y'all. <laughs> I was just waiting for that part. I did have to cycle back through the... Uh, I've only got uh, four of those space cuts, so I had to go back through. But hopefully you guys cut me a little slack here. All right, so Rattlin' Bones. Next up, I have a couple of very strong parallels to the idea of Knight's King... Winning an army of others with a single act. The first features young Griff, a.k.a. Fagon Blackfire, the fake son of Rhaegar Targaryen, winning over the Golden Company. First, check out Fagon. The prince wore sword and dagger, black boots polished to a high sheen, a black cloak lined with blood-red silk, with his hair washed and cut freshly dyed, a deep, dark blue. His eyes looked blue as well. At his throat, he wore three huge square-cut rubies on a chain of black iron, a gift from Magister Illyrio, red and black, dragon colors. Oh my god, we have so many Fagon truthers in the chat, everyone's like, fact gone, fact gone, allegedly, allegedly fake, fact gone. All right, y'all, all right. It's not a conclusion, it's not set in stone, we'll see, we'll see. Nah, he's he's fucking a black fire, y'all. He's either a black fire or a piss water prince, but that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's cool. We need truthers for every theory, so hey. Now he actually in terms of symbolism, he actually sounds a bit like Ramsey here, who has the black and blood coloring and ice eyes instead of Fagon's blue eyes. I read Fagon much the same way though, as an evil Azor High turned knight's king, although there may be more to it. He's almost like the opposite of a stolen other baby, a stolen dragon baby. Maybe we should track down all such figures one day, like Mance's child, Eamon Battleborn, or perhaps Danny's baby. In any case, I think the blue eyes and hair are key. His obvious dragon nature and colors are mixed with, this, with these ice symbols to give us a sort of ice and fire mixture. Now check out his horse. They gave the prince the best of the three horses, a big gray gilding so pale that he was almost white. Griff and Halden rode beside him on lesser mounts. The road ran south beneath the high white walls of Volantherius for a good half mile. Then they left the town behind, following the winding course of the ruin through willow groves and poppy fields and past a tall wooden windmill whose blades creaked like old bones as they turned. Now the windmill is a strong cosmic tree symbol. That's part of the idea behind the title of my very favorite comparative mythology book, Hamlet's Mill. The cosmic world tree is the axis 
around which the universe turns. So it's sometimes depicted as a water mill or windmill or even a whirlpool. The windmill is apt for a song of ice and fire, as the weirwoods seem to communicate to regular folk through the rustling of their leaves. And this creaky old windmill is making the sound of old bones. In other words, the weirwood is churning out some old bones, some others. The cold winds are blowing and the weirwoods are talking. A big-bellied, shambling hulk of a man. The cell sword had a seamed face crisscrossed with old scars. His right ear looked as if a dog had chewed on it, and his left was missing. Have they made you a captain, Flowers, Griff said. I thought the Golden Company had standards. It's worse than that, you bugger, said Franklin Flowers. They knighted me as well. He clasped Griff by the forearm, pulling him into a bone-crushing hug. You look awful, even for a man's been dead for a dozen years. Blue hair, is it? When Harry said you'd be turning up, I almost shit myself. And Halden, you icy cunt, good to see you too. Still have that stick up your ass. He turned to young Griff. And this would be? So Franklin Flowers has the name of a bastard of the Reach. So he's bringing the Garth the Green nature symbolism. And notice that he's called a Hulk of a man. And you know George loves those green Hulk references, such as he used at the Battle of the Blackwater, where the hulking ship was the one loaded up with wildfire. The Hulk is also huge, like other Garth figures, and like the tall stag men that we're picturing, so Franklin is very well spelled out to us as a green man Garth type. But his face is scarred. He's missing one and a half ears, almost like he has frostbite. He immediately calls out Griff's supposedly dead status and blue hair, and then calls Halden icy. Even better is the description of the gilded skulls, which have come to define and symbolize the Golden Company. The captain's general tent was made of cloth of gold and surrounded by a ring of pikes topped with gilded skulls. One skull was larger than the rest, grotesquely malformed. Below it was a second no larger than a child's fist. Meles, the monstrous, and his nameless brother. The other skulls had a sameness to them, though several had been cracked and splintered by the blows that had slain them, and one had filed appointed teeth. The other skulls had a sameness. Hello. In the A Game of Thrones prologue, the faceless others emerged silently from the shadows, twins to the first. George even slides in the word nameless here, regarding Melee's the Monstrous's tiny brother's skull, which is the size of a child's fist. Oh boy. That brings up the children and the Fist of the First Men, where the others in the Whites all showed up to butcher the Night's Watch. Anyways, hands of gold are always cold, and so too for skulls of gold, it would seem. I'll also point out that George has previously used the symbol of a skull on a spear to represent a weirwood in that scene north of the Wall, the severed, eyeless heads of three Night's Watch brothers, Garth Greyfeather, Blackjack Bulwer, and Harry Howe, were mounted on spears of ash to make grisly weirwood totems. The golden skulls on poles would seem to be the cold version of this symbol. And I'll actually remind you that even those three heads on ashwood spears had uh, snow beards, so there was a transforming into ice uh, action going on there too. Now this quote continues with John Connington staring at the skull of his old friend, Miles Toyne. Death had robbed him of his ears, his nose, and all his warmth. The smile remained. 
transformed into a glittering golden grin. All the skulls were grinning, even bitter steels on the tall pike in the center. What does he have to grin about? He died defeated and alone, a broken man in an alien land. On his deathbed, Sir Agor Rivers had famously commanded his men to boil the flesh from his skull, dip it in gold, and carry it before them when they crossed the sea to retake Westeros. His successors had followed his example. John Connington might have been one of those successors if his exile had gone otherwise. If John Conn's life had gone otherwise, he might have ended up as a cold, golden skull in a pole, too. <laughs> That's a good one. The theme of exile is great, too. All of the Golden Company are descended from exiles. The Blackfire Rebellion, hello, Long Night, Black Dragon symbolism, led to the exile of the Golden Company, just as the others were theoretically exiled from the Weirwood Net. So this was some sort of uh, rebellious fight. And of course, if you look at the Blackfire battles, there's all kinds of Long Night symbolism. So it's pretty interesting. These are, these are people that were kicked out of Westeros. I guess that's the parallel I'm trying to draw. The Golden Company was kicked out of Westeros, just like the others were theoretically exiled from the Weirwood Net. So, as for the grins of these skulls, perhaps this is a reference to the mocking laughter of the others. Who knows? The quote continues. Ghost and liars, Griff thought, as he surveyed their faces. Revenants from forgotten wars, lost causes, failed rebellions. A brotherhood of the failed and the fallen, the disgraced and the disinherited, this is my army. This is our best hope. So as you can see, Fagon has got himself an army of the dead. Revenants and ghosts. This is one of those ones where you could argue that Fagon is a last hero stolen other baby, more like John, and that his dead army is the Green Zombie Brotherhood. Sometimes it's hard to tell the Green Zombies and others apart, as they seem to be the opposite sides of the same coin, with a joined history. I'd argue the motive of the Golden Company matches the proposed motivation of the others perfectly. They've been evicted from their home generations ago, and they're still mad as ever, and they want to take back what is theirs. I've already read Griff turning his red hair blue and Fagon dyeing his silver hair blue as symbols of the Night's King's shift from fire to ice. But all this is still up for debate. I haven't gone over it enough to be totally set on, on that interpretation, so... The next example of a Night's King making an army of others from green men, I'm happy to say, is far less ambiguous. I'm also happy to say that it's time to celebrate good times. Come on. Later, there was a feast of sorts, though Peter was forced to make apologies for the humble fare. Robert was trotted out in a doublet of cream and blue and played the little lord quite graciously. Bronze yarn was not there to see. He had already departed from the Eyrie to begin the long descent, as Sir Lynn Corbury before him. The other lords remained with them till morn. All right, so the, the other lords, dun-dun-dun, the other lords remained with him until morn. Well, these are lords of the Vale, so it's easy to see them as icy. And did anyone else hear Robert was trotted out in a doublet of cream and think it sounds like they're serving up sweet Robin with a bowl of cream? to eat for the feast? Sweet Robin paste, anyone? No? Okay. Let's pick up where we left off with the other lords, remaining with Night's King Peter until morn. He bewitched them, Elaine thought, as she lay abed that night, listening to the wind howl outside her windows. 
She could not have said where the suspicion came from, but once it crossed her mind, it would not let her sleep. She tossed and turned, worrying at it like a dog at some old bone. Finally, she rose and dressed herself, leaving Gretchel to her dreams. So that's the same howling wind that is also described as a huge ghost wolf in a different Elaine Vale chapter, and it's keeping Sansa awake. Also keeping Sansa awake, her suspicions about Peter, the ones she's worrying at like an old bone. The message clearly is that she's eating an old one. Sweet Robin paste at the feast, like I just said. Ah, Sorry, I'm just kidding. Now, I'm making sure you're still paying attention. The, suspi- the suspicion, I got to do that, Quinn. I got to put those jokes in there. Else people like, they get lulled to sleep with the symbolism talk. So that's what the jokes are for. That and I like being funny. Yeah. The suspicion that Sansa is chewing on is the way Peter bewitched the other lords to come over to his side. Now this quote continues. Peter was still awake, scratching out a letter. Elaine, he said, my sweet, what brings you here so late? I had to know. What will happen in a year? He put down his quill. Red Fort and Waynewood are old. One or both of them may die. Gilwood Hunter will be murdered by his brothers, most likely by young Harlan, who arranged Lord Eon's death. In for a penny, in for a stag, I always say. Belmore is corrupt and can be bought. Templeton I shall befriend. Bronze Jan Royce will continue to be hostile, I fear. But so long as he stands alone, he is not so much a threat. Okay, so let's just go through these people. We've got Gilwood Hunter. Gills are found on fish, obviously, and woods are places that we find fish if we're talking about the green sea of the weirwood net. So Gilwood Hunter. Think Hearn the Hunter. This is all green man stuff. And remember, he's his brother he's gonna be murdered by his brother. Okay, so that's just like Renly murdered by Stannis. And Harlan is a name that Martin has conflated with Hearn the Hunter as the twin children of Garth were called Herndon of the Horn and Harlan the Hunter. And Harlan, and then we've got uh, this guy whose name is Harlan Hunter. He's in for a stag. <laughs> so it's just like, I mean, it's over the top. Anyways, I also want to plug Crow Food's Daughter's video on the Disputed Lands channel, which most of you have seen probably, I would expect anyways. I know all of you are to su- subscribe to the Disputed Lands. It's about uh, the Harlan and the Harlequin figures and what that has to do with the brother-brother killing cycle. So if one of my mods could drop the link to the Disputed Lands video about that. Anyway, we've got a red fort, which is a first-man house, whose sigil is a red castle on white, a potential weirwood coloring reference. Wainwood is great. They've got wood in their name, green in their sigil. And the whole wagon wheel thing brings us right back to the cosmic mill and the cycle of the seasons and life and death. A broken spoke on such a wheel, as we see in the Wainwood sigil, is generally a bad thing, but it's also a specific reference to the Long Night, because breaking the cycles of the universe and the seasons is what the Long Night is all about. House Belmore, well, their sigil is six silver bells on purple, which makes me think silver bells in a cap and vest, and remind you that silver bells is a Christmas song, and thus, Belmore is giving us Holly King, Winter King vibes here. Then we have Simon Templeton, the Knight of Nine Stars. Well, he's dripping with Night's King symbolism. Sansa describes his beard as black and sharply pointed. A beak of a nose and icy blue eyes made the Knight of Nine Stars look like some elegant bird of prey. Yeah, that's a good one. 
I don't want to get too bogged down here, but you can see that there's enough green man symbolism here to send the message that these other lords of the icy veil have green man weirwood heritage before Peter bewitches them. One final clue here about the others, and this picks up right where we left off in the last quote. And Sir Lynn Corbray? The candlelight was dancing in his eyes. Sir Lynn will remain my implacable enemy. He will speak of me with scorn and loathing to every man he meets and lend his sword to every secret plot to bring me down. That was when her suspicion turned to certainty. And how shall you reward him for this service? Littlefinger laughed aloud. With gold and boys and promises, of course. Sir Lynn is a man of simple taste, my sweetling. All he likes is gold and boys and killing. All the others like is Craster's boys and killing. In fact, Craster gives his boys to the others, and they in turn don't kill him, very like Peter and Lynn here. Now the thing is, Sir Lynn's symbolism screams blood raven. It's three black ravens clutching bloody hearts on a field of white. So that's three blood ravens in the snow or in the ice. The way I interpret this is basically the same way I interpreted the green man and weirwood symbolism of the other lords declarant. It's a sign that these other lords have an origin with the weirwoods. I mean, Sir Lynn certainly doesn't act like Bloodraven in any sense anyway. And here he is serving Peter Baelish, a Night's King figure, by pretending to be his enemy and, oh God, I'm giving the evil Bloodraven people fodder. I better stop. Don't even, I definitely won't point out that Bloodraven spent five books trying to get his hand on a certain boy and lives with children because that's just wrong. It's absolutely wrong. So definitely not going to say that. Now, summing this scene up, Sansa's suspicions about how Peter bewitched the other lords is the old bone that she's chewing on. And once again, we see it fits the pattern of a knight's king gaining an icy army from green men, former green men, at a stroke. I mean, Peter did this in one conversation. I mean, I guess there was like groundwork that he laid, but this was like one event that wasn't a battle where he just flipped everything and He basically commands their whole army now because he's gained control of the veil. So he effectively commands all the forces of the veil and decked out in all those lovely orange colors, cream-colored crescent moons on sky blue. They'll look basically like an army of others. So there you have it. All right, so we're almost done. We're going to close with one last scene, and it's with the Lord of Bones. This essay is all about bones. So, I mean, he's kind of the perfect mascot. He's also a likely suspect for other symbolism. So first, let's take a look at the first time that we see the Lord of Bones, right before John kills Corn Halfhand and goes over to the wildlings. Ten yards below the cave mouth, the hunters halted. Their leader came along, riding a beast that seemed more goat than horse. From the sure-footed way, it climbed the uneven slope. As man and mount grew nearer, John could hear them clattering. Both were armored in bones, cow bones, sheep bones, the bones of goats and oryx and elk, the great bones of hairy mammoths, and human bones as well. Rattleshirt, Corrin called down, icy polite. To crows I be the lord o' bones. The rider's helm was made from the broken skull of a giant, and all up and down his arms, bear claws had been sewn to his boiled leather. Okay, so did anyone catch what all these animals that died to make Rattleshirt's armor have in common? There are things with horns. Yes, cows, 
goats, aurochs, elk, mammoths, and even sheep if you count male sheep, a.k.a. rams. Humans don't have horns unless they're green men. Point being, many horned animals died to bring the Lord of Bones to life. It also reeks of necromancy in general, and of course, in terms of appearance, he effectively has white armor, giving him that milky-white, bone-white, otherish appearance. I really like the giant skull helm. That's a nice touch. Now, after Rattleshirt's introduction, we get an avalanche of others' double entendres. He freed his battle axe, brandishing it above his head. Good steel it was, with a wicked gleam to both blades. Eben was never a man to neglect his weapons. The other wildlings crowded forward beside him, yelling taunts. A few chose John for their mockery. Is that your wolf boy, a skinny youth called, unlimbering a stone flail? He'll be my cloak before the sun is down. On the other side of the line, another spearwife opened her ragged furs to show John a heavy white breast. Does the baby want his mama? Come on, have a suck, oh, this boy. The dogs were barking too. So there were two other double entendres there. The other wildlings crowded forward yelling taunts and on the other side of the line. The line about the other wildlings taunting kind of reminds you of the mocking words of the others when they confront Waymar, especially since John and Waymar have so many parallels, as me and Joe Magician and Gray Area have all talked about a bunch of times. Uh, a bit later in the scene, after John kills Corn Halfhand, we get this. A war he may be, Egret said, but that has never frightened us. Others shouted agreement. Behind the eye holes of his yellowed skull, Rattle's shirt's stare was malignant, but he yielded grudgingly. These are free folk indeed, thought John. They burn corn half-hand where he'd fallen, a pyre made of pine needles, brush, and broken branches. Some of the wood was still green, and it burned slow and smoky, sending a black plume up into the bright and hard blue of the sky. Afterward, Rattleshirt claimed some charred bones, while the others threw dice for the ranger's gear. Egret won his coat. Okay, so those were hard to miss. Others shouted agreement, with the word others capitalized because it's at the start of the sentence, and while the others threw dice for the ranger's gear, which is sweet because it's the others instead of just others. So that makes four others double entendres in close succession. And of course, you all know that the wildlings often play the role of the others, especially in the scene when John lets them through the wall and closely inspects them all. That chapter featured no less than seven others double entendres, a real tour de force, if I don't say so myself. So with all that established, the scene that we actually want to look at is the one where Mance Raider is glamoured as Rattleshirt, and this takes place after the real Rattleshirt has been burned while glamoured to look like Mance Raider. It starts with John beating up on his recruits, with Mansell's shirt stepping in to challenge. By that time, Jace had found his feet, so John put him down again. I hate it when dead men get up. You will feel the same the day you meet a white. Stepping back, he lowered his sword. The big crow can peck the little crows, growled a voice behind him. But has he belly enough to fight a man? Rattleshirt was leaning against the wall. A coarse stubble covered his sunken cheeks, and thin brown hair was blowing across his little yellow eyes. You flatter yourself, John said. Aye, but I'd flatten you. Stannis burned the wrong man. No, the wildling grinned at him through a mouth of brown and broken teeth. He burned the man he had to burn, for all the world to see. We all do what we have to do, Snow, even kings. 
Emmet, find some armor for him. I want him in steel, not old bones. So there's the old bones line preceded by talk of fighting whites, as well as Martin cleverly taunting us with the secret of Manson Rattleshirt being switched before the execution by saying, Stannis burnt the wrong man. Love that kind of stuff. It's great. It really just jumps out on the reread. But anyways, consider the implications of that in light of Mance's strong connection with the Horned Lord ideas. His command tent is adorned with a rack of antlers from a great elk, like the one Cold Hands rides. And better yet, he's a king beyond the wall, as was the Horned Lord before him. Horned Lord is remembered for authoring the sorcery is like a sword without a hilt, quote. And Mance, too, is implied as a sorcerer. The word Mance can mean magic, such as in pyromancy, necromancy, geomancy, aromancy, and so on. So, Mance Raider is really magical raider, and that's exactly what the Horned Lord was, a king beyond the wall who, quote, used sorcery to pass the wall. Now think about Mansell's shirt again. Mansell's shirt? Lord of Mance? Bones Raider? Bones Raider's not bad. Anyway, so he's a Horned Lord dressed up as an other. Oh, gosh, that's the whole theory, isn't it? Horned green men became the others. Okay, thanks. Turn out the lights when you leave. Thanks for coming. See you later. Actually, no, don't leave. We're almost done. We're almost done, but not quite. Now, when John fights Mansell Shirt, he sounds distinctly like an other, with almost superhuman speed and quickness. John doesn't seem to be able to land a decent blow on him and look out for two others double entendres. He has no shield, John reminded himself. And that monster soars too cumbersome for Perry's. I should be landing two blows for every one of his. Somehow he wasn't, though. And the blows he did land were having no effect. The wildling always seemed to be moving away or sliding sideways, so John's longsword glanced off a shoulder or arm. Before long, he found himself giving more ground, trying to avoid the other's crashing cuts and failing half the time. His shield had been reduced to kindling. He shook it off his arm. Sweat was running down his face and stinging his eyes beneath his helm. He is too strong and too quick, he realized. And with that greatsword, he has weight and reach on me. It would have been a different fight if John had been armed with Longclaw, but... His chance came on Rattleshirt's next backswing. John threw himself forward, bullying into the other man and they went down together, legs entangled, steel slammed on steel. Both men lost their swords as they rolled on the hard ground. The wildling drove a knee between John's legs. John lashed out with a mailed fist. Somehow Rattleshirt ended up on top with John's head in his hands. He smashed it against the ground, then wrenched his visor open. If I had me a dagger, you'd be less than I by now, he snarled before horse and iron emmet dragged him off the Lord Commander's chest. Let go of me, you bloody crows, he roared. Before I go to my scripted analysis here, I just, it really struck me on the reread, like how badly Mance kicks John's ass. Like, he completely whoops his ass in every sense here. John doesn't even get a blow in. Mance is taunting him and whooping his ass the whole time. Like, this was a complete, like, just bossing here. I just... It's worth appreciating how much of a badass that Mance is. Um, I, I also wonder if Martin isn't showing us this to give us a little hope that maybe Mance isn't dead and that he escaped whatever fate that Ramsay, you know, if Ramsay captured him or 
tried to capture him. Like, I've still got hope that Mance Raider is not just dead and in a cage or about to die or something, because I love Mance. I want to see more of him. What do you think, Quinn? I think Mance is alive, and we're definitely going to see more of him. I don't think George is just getting rid of that character like that. Right. He's not just going to die in the cage, I guess is what I'm saying, if he is in the cage. All right. So this is cool here. The other man is sliding sideways. And I love how John thinks that it would have been different if he had Longclaw. That's true. Valerian Steel is great against the others, I hear. Overall, I think this is a great preview of what it's going to be like to fight a White Walker in the books. And there are parallels to the Waymar fight here, too, besides the mocking challenge of the old bone-clad wildling lord. Most importantly, Mansell's shirt threatens to take out John's eye, which is exactly what the others did to Waymar in the prologue. This is no small detail, because as Joe Magician and I have discussed on his channel and mine, there are clues that what the others really want to do to John is not to kill him, but to transform him, perhaps into a new knight's king or some kind of super white. Who knows? This idea actually seems to be hinted at by Martin just a little further on in this chapter. By nightfall, the bruises that Rattleshirt had given him had turned purple. They'll go yellow before they fade away, he told Mormont's raven. I'll look as sallow as the Lord of Bones. Bones, the bird agreed. Bones, bones. Bones, bones, (laughs) bones. In other words, Mansell's shirt's blows have begun to transform John into looking like him. It's easy to see the implications of that. And in the reverse reading of the Game of Thrones prologue, we pointed out the possibility of the others using their swords to transform people, like some sort of icy Nissa-Nissa type of thing. And it's similar to what we saw on the show in the making of Night's King with Dragonglass, of course. One also thinks of Arthur Dane knighting Jamie with Dawn. Oh, yes, there's an interesting idea. Anyways, so there's, there's one more line I want to briefly mention. As John muses on Melisandre's nightfire rituals, he notes that there are perhaps a dozen black brothers who had taken her red god for their own. That could be a hint about the last hero's dozen green zombies being animated by fire. I mean, that's our best guess about what kind of whites they were, based on all the burning scarecrow symbolism shared between the scarecrow sentinels on the wall and Barrack, who is a fiery scarecrow knight. So after this fight with Mansell's shirt the other, John decides to walk the wall and observe some mythical astronomy. Molly and Keg stood inside the doors, leaning on their spears. A cruel cold out there, my lord, warned Molly through his tangled orange beard. Will you be out long? No, I just need a breath of air. John stepped out into the night. The sky was full of stars, and the wind was gusting along the wall. Even the moon looked cold. There were goosebumps all across its face. Then the first gust caught him, slicing through his layers of wool and leather to set his teeth to chattering. He stalked across the yard into the teeth of that wind. So the moon is turning cold, and then the cold is slicing through John and setting his teeth to chattering. I take this for more cold transformation language, and the cold moon with ghost bumps was simply too good to pass up. You know me, I couldn't pass up something like that. Now, while this cold transformation could be talking about John's possible fate, should the others catch him, it could also be referring to John's murder at the end of this book, A Dance with Dragons, a scene which also has parallels to Waymar's death, at the hands of the others, by the way. In that light, it's interesting to observe what happens next, 
after the cold wind slices through John's clothes. And this is picking up right where we left off. In the shadow of the wall, the dire wolf brushed up against his fingers. For half a heartbeat, the night came alive with a thousand smells. And Jon Snow heard the crackle of the crust breaking on a patch of old snow. Someone was behind him, he realized suddenly. Someone who smelled warm as a summer day. When he turned, he saw Egret. She stood beneath the scorched stones of the Lord Commander's tower, cloaked in darkness and memory. The light of the moon was in her hair, her red hair kissed by fire. When he saw that, John's heart leapt into his mouth. Egret, he said. Lord Snow, the voice was Melisandre. Meaning, when John is at his coldest and in danger of icy transformation, it might be handy to have hot hands mel around. And you'll recall that Sorceress Flames played about her hands in another A Dance with Dragons scene. John's heart leaps into his mouth, which sounds kind of like a resurrection symbol, I must say. And look, there's Ghost. So to put a cherry on this, let me point out some advanced wordplay uh, that will... Actually, before I move along, when I say there's Ghost, of course, I'm implying that Ghost might be involved in John's resurrection, meaning that if John's spirit is merged with Ghost spirit inside the wolf, what we've got to do is move that spirit out of the wolf back into John's body... And that might involve killing the wolf body. But it won't be quite as sad as that sounds because, you know, the wolf spirit will actually be in John's uh, corpse. So that's what I see uh, here. I see John basically turning cold, walking in the shadow of the wall. Then Melisandre appears, and there's Ghost, and John's heart is in his mouth, et cetera, et cetera. So to put a cherry on this. Let me point out some advanced wordplay that will make friends like Rusted Revolver, Pan Doubter, and Ravenous Reader exuberant. Old Snow. No one in the chat has gotten this yet. Old Snow. Uh, spell snow backwards, guys. W-O-N-S. Now say it. Wands. Old wands. Ha <laughs> ha! Old Snow, old wands. Yes, that's right. And now we will cite all the scenes where the phrase Old Snow is used. And no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it occurs 15 times in the main series, with nine of them coming in John chapters, including this scene that parallels the one with Mel that we just cited. He found Egret sprawled across a patch of old snow beneath the Lord Commander's tower with an arrow between her breast. The ice crystals had settled over her face, and in the moonlight, it looked as though she wore a glittering silver mask. So that's a beautiful and tragic scene, and, and a good place to stop for today. It's actually a bit of a teaser for the next Green Zombies episode, too. As you can see, Kissed by Fire Ygritte becoming Kissed by Ice in Death. If the weirwood goddess represents the weirwood, this icy silver mask Ygritte is putting on here in death is equivalent to the pale shadow of a weirwood armored in ice from the Vermeer prologue of A Dance with Dragons. It's hinting at some connection between Nissa Nissa and Night's Queen, and it's hinting at the concept of freezing over of the weirwood net, which I believe to be the ultimate goal of the others. And yes, that is... I just dropped what I think is the goal of the others, folks. They're trying to make it to the Isle of Faces so they can freeze the Weirwood Net 
so they can re-inhabit their home, because as they currently exist, they cannot merge back with the Weirwoods. They are now beings of ice, but if they freeze the Weirwood net over, they'll be able to kick the Green Seers out and take the Weirwoods back over, and that is what the others are trying to do. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. For- dun, dun. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. <laughs> so there you go, guys. And Wiz the Smith agrees. Nice. I like it. The silver mask reminds me of Quave. There's also Morna White Mask, a wildling witch woman who wears a weirwood mask and has gender fluid identity. So that's a pretty cool uh, tie in there, too. And uh, Val has a weirwood brooch. And yes. Yeah, and also people are noticing, yeah, so that was a penny tree diagram right there with Ygritte's death. The arrow was right between her breasts. The penny tree is right between the teats. Um, That's the cosmic world tree between the two moons, which are like huge tracts of open land, the biggest in Britain. (laughs) Boobs of ice and fire, folks. I've hinted at it before, but it is is a thing. I'm waiting Um, for that compendium. Well, we have the ice milk and the fire milk. Uh, so, we, you know, those come from boobs of ice and fire. I mean, that's <laughs> between the teats is the penny tree. So, and that's that's what's cool. So there's dying Ygritte, literally transforming from kissed by fire to kissed by ice, giving us the penny tree symbol, showing us that the weirwood is the portal between the ice and the fire, the ice and fire moons or just ice and fire in general. So this is cool. This is why I sort of, do a few episodes in one series and do a few episodes in another series and then circle back and do the second half of a series because like we needed to build up some of the moons of ice and fire others idea before I could do the weirwood others idea but we also had to do the weirwood ideas separately so now here we are seven episodes into green zombies and we can finally tie ice and fire together through the weirwoods and then when we pick up in um, signs and portals very soon we're going to do the penny tree episode and we're going to go through all the scenes that have this penny tree layout. And like I said, I'll have painkiller Jane on since it's her, her discovery completely. And, um, we'll try not to say titty fucking too many times. So <laughs> it's, true. it's true. That's why we don't have ravenous reader on the live streams. <laughs> it'd be just, it'd be just chaos. Can you imagine that Sanry? It'd be so fun. Oh, my God. <laughs> he would be so great. Yeah. Well, we love you, Ravi. And uh, I hope you guys liked my, um, I hope you like my old snow, old ones one. And I saw people talking about Woon Woon, the giant, one one. That's probably um, probably uh, a thing. I'll have to go look at him. Remember, we're talking about giants and all that shit. So, yes, this thing could go on forever. There's old thrones. People were talking about old thrones, like old weirwood thrones or thrones of oily black stone there's old stones like jenny of old stones uh, a place with all kinds of cool weirwood symbolism that's tied to the ghost of the high heart so there's a lot of this old bones thing does does it's only the tip of the iceberg and i don't know that i'm gonna do episode on every single one of those but if you guys want to go digging you know word search old thrones old stones somebody's talking about hot pie makes old scones <laughs> oh my god that's it bye guys cheers Thanks for coming by <laughs>